0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to VoiceCraft. This is a conversation with the philosophers Forrest Landry and Alexander Bard, which circles on themes of metaphysics and power in the digital age. They've both been on the podcast previously, and both are deeply influential and relevant thinkers in an intellectual world that extends beyond academia, though the academy itself is sleeping on the contributions each have to make. I think it's fair to say rare minds with an incredible amount to add to some of the most important discourses of our time with overlapping interest in the fields of existential risk and visions of cultural transformation. They each have very different styles and while sharing resonance of view in some domains appear to differ in others which makes for an interesting discussion. Although this one, despite being a couple hours long, is ultimately too short, I think, to bring the most profound and potentially most generative differences to a place of clarity and shorter still to a broader context of integration. But nevertheless, I hope you find this fascinating and helpful. I certainly did. It was recorded in February 2021, although the themes for discussion are very much relevant today and likely for many years to come. So it's been six months since recording while the podcast was on hiatus to now publishing, I was wondering at the time whether sharing it unlisted under the Wiser Pathways initiative could perhaps be more productive, but that distinct shamanic context for sharing artefacts and stoking intra- and inter-community conversation is still congealing, and I feel that sharing this here may be broadly helpful to those with interests in these topics. I think barring some references nearer the end of the conversation, there's a lot here that's digestible for listeners not previously acquainted with either body of work, I'd love to share a bit more of my own thinking in relation to what follows, but perhaps that can come through later on. Thank you both to Alexander and Forrest. You can find links to their works and other pieces in the show notes, along with a full and edited transcript. Okay, hope you enjoy. Here we go. And thank you very much to all the patrons for your continued support. It means a great deal. For those of you wishing to support the channel and the project more broadly, you can go to patreon.com slash voicecraft. I would love to have a conversation with both of you actually solely about distribution. Forrest, you know a little bit more about what I'm thinking about this given an email I sent a couple weeks ago in relation to a conversation we had with John, but it's definitely relevant to a discussion about what's going on at the moment with a sort of creep of censorship and the importance of building integrous networks. So it's definitely an interesting conversation to be had all on its own. But like so many of the conversations we could have, and um, in particular, because both of your work and thinking is so, so broad and so many unique ways of using terms, with different styles and traditions behind them you know there's a certain sense in which proceeding from the attempt to come to clarity about some wouldn't say fundamentals but at least some um, some broad topic or theme that we can all bite into together might be the most helpful way of going about a conversation. But I'm also perfectly happy to sort of just sit here and say nothing and and listen to whatever wants to emerge as well. So I'm not saying, hey, we have to have the conversation this way. But I do have, as I outlined in the email, sort of a way to potentially go about it, if that's
1: of interest to you guys. I'm certainly open. I remember it had been suggested in the email conversations that we had we had been having to help me to understand your work, and I thought that was really generous. And I and I was like, uh, actually, really, I'm interested to do that. I feel like we're both guilty of this terminology thing, and I and I know I need to learn your terminology. So um, I'm basically available to whatever your uh, whatever your interest is. How's that?
2: you mean, me. That same goes for me. Absolutely. And it's kind of weird here because we're both considered white privileged Western men or something. And we're talking about the fact that it's kind of hard to understand both of us because we use such different vocabularies here. But this is all due to the backgrounds we come from. And just it just proves how fiendishly hard it is to communicate these days, especially when you're gonna do it on the levels where we work, which is like systemic thinking. Uh, number one, people who have a talent for systemic thinking are incredibly rare. Number two, to think is one thing, to actually put it into practice is something entirely different. Uh, And number three, we also use very different languages. So for example, when I read Forrest the first time, it's just like, okay, who is this guy? (laughs) Why does he write this way? And I kind of decided that, okay, imagine um, a really talented computer scientist who's kind of figured out that there's a future war between men and machine or something like that. And he's trying to make men understand how machines would actually think if they had language, which they probably will have sooner or later. And it turned out that he was kind of a a Nietzschean ecologist in all of this as well, right? That's how I experienced Forrest when I read it. And I just took the time to understand it. The The way to read, is to not jump from one word to the next. Thinking you're going to figure it out as you go along. You can do that with a newspaper article. You can do that with you know just about anything these days, which is sort of meant for a mass market. But if you're going to dig really deep into, say, serious academic work, for example, or philosophical work in this case, you've got to sit down word by word, and if there's a word you don't understand, go and figure it out. Get a damn dictionary, and then try to interpret it from the context. Otherwise, you'll be lost in no time at all. But even decently intelligent people can read Forest Landry or Bard and Sodiclist. The trick is though to understand the way to read it is to read it word by word by word. And then you will know that there's a certain vocabulary we use, the terms return, the concepts are repeated, and then you start getting it. There's no other way. I think Forrest agrees with me that we both make a very, very serious attempt before we publish anything to actually make it as pedagogical as it could be possible. But Serde and I promised each other we started writing 25 years ago to never compromise on the quality of our work. We do not make ourselves more accessible and thereby lose the content while we do it because then there would be no point in us writing. There are so many pop versions of us anyway. So that's not something we're concerned with.
1: Correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm with all that. I, I think the only addendum that I would put in is that uh, in, in an effort to try to make it a little easier, I, I wrote somewhat holographically. So in effect, rather than expecting a person to go word by word, I figured that if they skipped parts and came back, as long as they read through multiple times. So there's a, a lot of forward linkages where the meaning of the terminology doesn't become clear until later or until you see it in the context of multiple other usages. And so in that sense, I uh, attempted to pick words that would be uh, as close to the meanings needed as were available, and then to use that as a way to bootstrap understanding to deeper layers. Uh, So in that sense, if there's multiple passes made, then there's a continual refinement that's going on as people uh, encounter the material. So that was essentially a a methodological device that was put in, particularly to communicate some of these ideas.
2: Oh, I agree completely. And by the way, just having a dictionary next to a work of philosophy doesn't mean you're gonna understand the work at all. But it's just, I just recommend people not to think that they can jump forward and somehow get it. Rather like you said, reread it and reread it again. That's what I do with the masters to understand what they're doing. And that's what I do my own thinking about the world we live in today. Otherwise I wouldn't be a philosopher.
1: So how would you like to begin? What questions or topics or uh, directions would you hope to go in this conversation with, with me? I mean, like I said, there, are, I, I'm, I'm genuinely interested in learning more about your work in a more interactive way. Um, there's also some of the stuff that Tim suggested as far as, as uh, orientations for this conversation. And again, I'm, I'm actually feeling recep- receptive more than projecting. So I would, uh, I would, I would offer for you to, to initiate in that sense.
2: Okay, so we did get an email from Tim with some suggestions and Tim might want to fill in as well. So, but yeah, it's sure. a really great start. The way I work with John Söderquist and we've written five books over the past 20 plus years. We're working on our sixth book to be released next year. You can find Border Söderquist on Amazon if you're interested. So that's over we done with. But anyway, the way we work is that we basically use human beings as a constant and we use technology as a variable. Okay. Uh, we we started writing in the 1990s, having discovered that most of sort of continental philosophy or the kind of philosophy we loved ourselves wasn't concerned with the major you know changes of the 20th century, which were like technology was taking over the world increasingly, and and surely after August 6, 1945, we had an historical date when we blew up an atomic bomb. It changed things forever. Now, if you want an event, that certainly was an event. There are also other events, for example, that we had the first cosmonaut up in the sky who was showing us pictures of planet Earth being green and blue and beautiful in a very, very large, very, very cold universe. And these pictures are also now sort of ingrained in our minds as well. And that was also an event that shaped us in the 20th century. And the funny thing is that philosophers basically disregarded this, which is like, well, you also had cosmology. (laughs) We discovered that wasn't just the Milky Way. There were billions of Milky Ways out there and the Big Bang, probably a big bounce these days, uh, is, is, um, is also completely changed our worldview. While, while we lost a sense of space on this planet, because we know here directly, the three of us are communicating in real time with one another, sitting on three different continents. We are literally evidence of the fact that space has disappeared on this planet. But space is a concept for the universe, has of course exploded. So. All of these things have to be taken into context if you're going to do contemporary philosophy, and philosophers just wouldn't, because they would just go on with their sort of old academic themes and quote Heidegger, 400 time or something like that, which I think is completely relevant since the internet is taking over the world. We're all getting connected with one another. Time becomes absolutely essential as space has disappeared in most of our lives. So the time axis is now more important than ever. And this on top of the fact that we have climate change and existential disaster about to happen. Now, all of these things need to be worked on. And I think that's where you and I agree, Forrest. And the way I did it with Jan, to put it very simple, is that since human beings do not change that much, they might have the desire to fuck people who are more brilliant than the previous generation, but they never do. Because when people get drunk or high, they fuck all the wrong people, and they're just about as idiotic as they ever were. So human beings are the same. you know. They're, they're ants with pretensions, as I call them. So we had that for the last 10,000 years. Uh, a Fat old lady sat down somewhere in Babylonia some 5,000 years ago, and she managed to fool some people into the idea that the permanent settlement would be a good idea. And and they had enough harvesting of you know grain or corn or whatever to make enough beer to actually believe it and that's called civilization ever since now humans haven't really changed i'm a firm believer in the sociant the sociant the idea that there were some 60 to 70,000 years where current hominoids homo sapiens essentially were created the way we were and we were shaped during that era And we haven't had much time to adapt to anything in the past 5,000 years, which is exactly why we created the disaster we're moving towards. And so we can use human beings as a constant, but technology then becomes the variable and technology is now operating at a dramatic Ch- it's a, the, the pace of change when it comes to te- technology is dramatic. Yes, technology gets stuck in certain areas. Peter Thiel is very happy to talk about it just because it doesn't get his you know, flying car or whatever he wanted. But when it comes to the actual things that really do matter, like what it is, what does it mean to be human when 8 billion people through the computers or smartphones are directly connected to one another at all times? And when I can joke with people these days and say that you think you can go offline Have you heard of surveillance cameras and satellites? They're like everywhere. You're never offline, baby. You're all online because the satellites are now basically, there's this web around the planet interconnecting everything, including all machines and technologies too. So this sort of hyper-technological phase we're in right now, existential risk, and a constant, who's the human being, means that studying the human being all over again except for anthropology, isn't that interesting. It's really the relationship, the relationship between man and machine that fascinates me. And there's tons of work that needs to be done here. And a lot of that work has to be systemic work, which is I think your genius forest. And there are very few people who can think man versus machine stuck on a planet with limited resources as systemic thinking.
1: Uh, understood, agreed. So I, I'm, I'm basically with, with all of that. Um, I think a couple of clarifying questions and just kind of orienting my context with respect to you. Um, so you, you've you've outlined the kind of principal issues. Uh, I very much agree that the human being is a constant, right? That I'm not going to be changing, you know, the nature of the person in any substantive way. Um, and so, to some ex- extent, the the places where there is mutability uh, is is going to be in the use and the uh, integration of technology. So the man-machine relationship. Um, I do have one question, which is um, I do regard culture as mutable, and very much defining of uh, what the relationship between uh, man, machine, and nature is going to be. Obviously, I don't regard nature as mutable either, but definitely impacted by these uh, by these choices that we make. So, in other words, the natural laws don't change, but whether or not the ecology remains is an open question. So, um, I guess the, the the first thing that I would I would ask is is what do you view as um the relevance of culture with respect to uh the work that you're doing in the man machine relationship and um i guess what is the longer term i I, I think i'm i'm actually a little confused about you know agreeing with um, first of all i agree with the, the nature of the technology takeover that you can't get away from it but i don't know whether or not you're advocating for essentially a kind of technological singularity or you're advocating for a kind of, I, I guess I don't know what your advocacy is for actually. Like I, I get the sense about the, 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 the sort of um, cultural religious element, but I don't know how that fits. And that's kind of why I'm asking about this.
2: Okay, great. So my two heroes are Hegel and Nietzsche when it comes to Western thinking. And the brilliance lies very much in the fact that they're descriptive rather than prescriptive philosophers. If you jump to the, suppose, what I'm advocating here, as if you jump to what I'm advocating, like I'm gonna be some kind of preacher, I prefer not to go to that place, at least not very quickly, rather than to stay in the descriptive mode for as long as possible, which I also like about your own work. So I I read you as a descriptive philosopher, because I think that's actually what's brilliant here. As as the clearing, we get closer to the clearing, As, as more people begin to understand the complexity of the issues and understand the issues, Understand the complexity itself; it gets easier to get to the solutions. But this is, for example, what in the new book, prost and Event, which is going to finish off this grand narrative trilogy, so it's not right. We actually took the decision to celebrate the Bronze Age and the engineers of the world for whatever they can do, because we think we need them more than ever. And we're gonna, you know, basically tell that our own kind. You know, the Pillar Saints and the Boy Pharaohs of history, as we call them whatever happened around 800 before Christ, which has been celebrated as the axial age in academics for the past 300 years was actually a disaster <laughs> because it was the pillar saints and the boy pharaohs of history that actually took us to the brink of extinction. It wasn't the engineers. Engineers basically, they get a drawing and they get an idea they got to build a skyscraper and they build it. And whenever they invent new technologies, they usually invent technology to kill them anyway. It's called the guillotine syndrome for a good reason. So we don't really have to be scared about engineers. We need them more than ever. We need sophisticated, fantastic engineering. We need AI to be involved in that. If we're ever going to build a fusion power plant and solve the energy issue, we probably will have to wait until the AI can help us design you know, the the, the sort of reactors we need to make that feasible to begin with. So I'm I'm all for that sort of symbiotic intelligence and symbiotic transcendence, even that's possible out of man-machine relationships. That means we need to rewrite all of history as Hegel would say. We need to rewrite history completely. We need to go back and say, why on earth did we celebrate all these pillar saints who were just full of their own egos, sitting on their pillars in the woods, meditating all day long, forgetting about the material world out there? Well, they're not much use now, are they? No, they're not. They just end up as crystal healing commercialism in California or something. Not much else. I don't think, I don't think Buddha's fans were any better than anybody you find in, in you know, El Sur, California anyway, to be honest about it. So the real issues at hand here are Culture really kicks in and starts with civilization. It's meaningless to speak about culture before that whatever sort of nomadic tribes of hominoids that were walking across the planet, they were never more than 3 million at any given time because you can't support more than 3 million people if you're going to go for hunting and, and gathering, right? Once you settle, you create much larger populations and eventually you create more density and more weight onto the planet eventually for survival. And the, the, you know, like mutations now with the pandemic, you also increase the risk that somebody's come up with an atomic bomb that can blow us all up. So the longer you stay along the time axis, the less we understand who we are and what we're doing. And the more dense the population, the larger the population gets, the higher the risk gets that something terrible is gonna happen. So that that is is culture. That is the honest idea of culture. I think Sigmund Freud put it out firmly in his book, Civilization and Its Discontents. I think we even had an opening chapter in our digital libido book that says that civilizations and its discontents and everything outside of that too. It's like everything is a discontent for humans. But the pointer is that culture, which is the word uh, Sigmund Freud is using in German here, Kultur, right? Um, and, and what it means is that the, the, what we created over the last 5,000 years is something we both existentially mentally feel increasingly frustrated with because we created a monster that is no longer us. We created a monster, for example, that is so full of shortcuts and quick fixes that if you're 20 years old today and you don't like Wall Street, you start and occupy Wall Street and the Wall Street guys know you'll be over in three days because your attention span is now so damn short that after two days, the Wall Street guys will come down to the street and greet you with an Instagram camera and sell you a fucking t-shirt that says I was there. I mean, these these 20 these year olds, there's no way they'll be winners. That entire generation is lost already because we're going to lose them because we don't understand digital. And we don't understand what these technologies do to us. And, and it, it, we, much, we much, must get to a much bigger picture to understand the smaller phenomena within that picture. The desire is to even be like a satellite as a philosopher and look at the largest possible picture to then be able to zoom in on the details, but also be able to see the connections that other people do not see. Otherwise, how are we gonna see even remotely the possibilities that could take us out of the current predicament? That would be impossible.
1: So I'm, I'm going to, um, I'm, I'm basically wanting to just, again, kind of create a comparison or, or, or sort of an orientation. So in other words, again, I'm partly in, in uh, descriptive mode. I think your, your your notion about descriptive and proscriptive is, is correct. And um, my work largely is descriptive, but it, it it attains a certain effectiveness by being proscriptive and then finding out the implications of that proscriptiveness. Well, um, you are, you are, we should say you are a scientist
2: and I'm not. So that's perfectly fine with me because I expect engineers and computer scientists and others to be able to reach conclusions while i'm just trying to get the biggest possible picture in the provide. So okay, i think that, that's perfect. That actually, okay. There's a difference between us that actually we could play
1: with here that that's very well that very that, that, yeah. that comment helps a lot because i um it 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 does sort of articulate I, and and it, and it gives me a, a sense of of understanding why i was misunderstanding you. So um again to try to create correspondences between our work cuz i i believe that's useful. Again, it's, a, it's sort of a language exercise at this point, but um, first of all, I, I really love the articulation that you gave to uh, the flaw of the axial age, I think is, is maybe a way to put that. Um, and so you know, going back to the notion of really understanding the human condition, like if you, if, you, if you treat the human being as immutable, at one point you basically said, well, since it's immutable, let's ignore that. But I think I've gone the opposite way there. Part of what I, I've been attempting to do is to by understanding the human condition, understand what the fuck up of the axial age really is. So in other words, um, you know, the boy pharaohs, I mean, I'm just going to basically say um, the sociopathy of the of the age, right? If, if you look at and you apply uh, DSM-5 criteria to uh, religious figures and uh, deity manifestations and such like that, you end up with a whole uh, panoply of uh, diagnosis potentials that actually aren't very complementary. And so um, you know, and, and I'm sure you can un- unpack that coded language at leisure and, and find all sorts of interesting things to 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 riff on. I
2: will certainly credit you for the sociopathy of the axial age. Just let's start there. <laughs> I agree with you completely. I mean, hey, remember this thing: whenever we have abundance in human history, that's when idiocy starts, right? <laughs> Because we, ha- we can afford to let the idiots live, but the problem with that, the idiots will be rampantly everywhere and they will compensate for the fact that they're idiots. And they will be pompous about it and pretentious about it. I'm not a big we, fan of either Christianity nor Islam, but I'm not a big fan of pop. I'm, I'm not I'm, a big fan of things that get popular because they're usually I'm popular because that. they flatter people,
1: right? We, we don't need to we don't need to reiterate those points. I, I get it, yeah. I, I really do. And, yeah. I, and, and, and furthermore, I'm with you on all that. So. Um, <laughs> You know I, I don't necessarily have an intention to go off pissing pissing a lot of people off so I don't mention it very much but um you know there's there, there's definitely a sense here though that uh, if you if you factor in the evolutionary systemic process so in other words uh, evolution can be understood in a kind of rigorous mathematical sort of way a kind of process or computer science oriented way and that gives you the ability to use it as a sort of tool and to model things a little bit so for example, as you mentioned, when you have people come out of tribes and into cities and, and starting to have uh, civilization at larger scale, then the compensatory mechanisms that would normally have uh, suppressed sociopathy, dark triad characteristics uh, evaporate, and now you end up with uh, dark triad uh, personality characteristics as actually being adaptive to the uh, urban environment. And so I I think that the Axial Age is itself an outcome of that process. And uh, it's not just a manifestation of it, but it then became kind of a a core leverage point for uh, those processes going forward. So in other words, the whole uh, hierarchical uh, religious precepts to basically create a kind of uh, organization for society that uh, maybe created some amount of differential advantage for certain people relative to others. Uh, depending upon the degree to which they had uh, those kinds of characteristics, so in in that sense, um, you know, it's 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 become critically important from my point of view to uh, to to recognize that those elements are part of the human condition, and that uh, if we are going to essentially uh, compensate for the use of technology, because technology is a amplifying factor, it's going to, as you said, with uh, nuclear uh, weapons, right? We have uh, now capacities that exceed that of, 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 of most concepts of what deity would be. Uh, you know, think of Thor's hammer and how, you know, he can create lightning and all. And then you've got, you know, nuclear weapons that can create a hundred lightning bolts in a split second. Yes. Um, and so, so in this sense, there is a, uh, there's, there's a huge degree to which there is an amplification that technology has inevitably. And when you combine it with the sociopathy thing, things go rather bad, rather quickly. Right. So, Uh, In this sense, I can't just rely on the engineers because the engineers being human and in the context of of humans with these characteristics are in effect going to become subject to that influence. And of course, you end up with, well, basically all the problems we currently have. Mm -hmm. And so in in this sense, um, I'm really leveraging cultural dynamics fundamentally as a kind of moderation for the human elements in the context of the Uh, technological element as the uh, last gasp of stabilization possible.
2: Oh, yeah, that that's why philosophy influences architecture. And at the end of the day, we're talking about architecture here. We're talking about architecture of infrastructure. We're talking about urban planning We're talking about how how do you how do you maintain some kind of political administrative order? can protect us from a a existential risk to begin with and then can build a better world
1: yeah one that's not going to be compromised by the dark triad manifestation uh the sociopathy manifestations that 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 effectively did compromise so effectively uh for so many uh at this point thousands of years right so in other words
2: why why don't why don't you why don't you tell those who involved in our conversation what do you mean we dark triad so we get that right so we can uh, this is far as
1: narcissism. Yeah. Um, you know Machiavellianism. Uh, you know the, the kinds of things where where an individual operating in a self oriented way uh, privatizes commons benefits. Perfect. And yes. By doing that, they 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 basically divest the commons of, of value and make the world more fragile, right? So, uh, in the in the transactional schema between uh, individuals and communities, um, that that in effect you end up with a pumping of value from the community to the individual.
2: Yeah, the way you're the way using our vocabulary here, for those who are familiar with it, that means what we call those who ignore exploitation. We regard the principle of exploitation as way more important than exploitation. And exploitation is basically what an old woman would tell you in the tribe, when she would tell you, this is a resource you have, you're going to try to get as much out of this resource as you possibly can by keeping it. Okay, which is completely opposite of exploitation. So we would regard the dark tribe the way we use it so not, as these are characters that have no respect towards the exploitation principle at all. So they will then exploit everything they get close to. It's by the nature. Minds, you know, resources, whatever. It, it, they, they couldn't care less. That's the problem with the dark tribe
1: personality types. Understood and agreed. So, you know, I, 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 I yes.
0: Can I ask you guys to fold in a notion to this? Because there's something that's come up in relation to prescriptive and descriptive. And I wonder if there's not also something that should be added to that distinction. And that's the notion of invitation. Philosophy is invitation. And when I think about things like time, I think about us coordinating here. And I think about what enables choice appropriately. I think about an invitation extended. It's not something, I mean, I can describe where something's at, right? And I'm not telling you, you have to do it, but I'm inviting the participation in something. And so when we talk about moving towards here, what I'm sensing is culture as something we can interact in as a way to reorient our collective whole in relationship to the change upon us. um, Then
1: I just... I would... Yeah, I, I see it, I, I definitely see it. I think that part of the reason that it wasn't mentioned, just just to give you some context, is, is that when, when we're thinking about, or when I'm thinking about uh, causal process, right? So for instance, we have choice, change, and causation. And insofar as I'm thinking about the relationship between technology and the human being, I'm thinking about the relationship between choice and causation but I can only, I mean, and, and changes like nature. So for instance, the choice adheres to the human. So the invitation would be to, to talk about how we enable choice. Whereas when we're looking at, um, you know, say computer science, I can describe why a, a, a thing maybe has the characteristics that it does. So in other words, I can look back at nature and I can say, well, you know, it, it, it looks like that when I do this, this happens, right? So I can say it, it the, the boiling point of water is roughly 100 degrees Celsius if the pressure happens to be about normal. And the, the, the notion of descriptive in that sense is, is, is observational, um, whereas the notion of proscriptive would be that, that in a context of like a computer program that I would set a variable equal to a thing. Or I would say, uh, as a mathematician, from this moment onwards, I'm going to define this term to refer to this construct or this theorem or something. Um, whereas uh, in, in the larger sense, when we're talking about culture, it is an invitational thing because I can't condition or control anybody, right? There's 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 no thing I'm going to do that's going to be other than influential, right? I'm not going to be able to cause a person to, to engage in a particular behavior and still have some notion that they have sovereignty or identity or, or any kind of personhood at all if I'm causing things, right? I'm, I've made them into an, a, an object rather than a subject. So... In, in, in that sense, uh, what, what I'm very much interested in to to do is to say, okay, yes, we can regard invitation as a kind of recognition of others' choice, and that if I'm if I'm being proscriptive, I'm being proscriptive in the sense of uh, finite things, not people. So, for instance, uh, you know, proscriptive in the sense of trying to conditionalize what a machine can do but not necessarily what a person can do, because that's obviously not the case. Um, there's, a, there's another level, which is, I think, uh, some, somewhat relevant too, which is that, you know, when we're, when we're looking at, say, space and time, I mean, you know, he, he, he made the point very clearly, I think, that uh, our notions of space have changed enormously in, in the last few hundred years and it's become collapsed and it's become much more relevant to think about time. Uh, but to, to me, there's a third element to that, which is, is the notion of potentiality, right? We have actuality and there is potentiality, which is what could happen. <clears throat> so, so in the same way we can think about matter in space as a kind of content context relationship, right? We have things in the universe. Um, I can also think about forces in time right? How much influence there is, how much, you know, pressure or whatever. Um, and again, that's not necessarily a causal thing, but it's, it's an influential one. Um, and then finally, I can think about uh, probability in the scope of possibility. So if I'm, if I'm really trying to understand things like risk, I need to basically be able to think about the potential, like the counterfactual of what could happen, how uh, likely is an existential risk versus how impactful it would be if it happened. And right now, I, I feel that uh, when we're doing game theory and, and and that kind of stuff, first of all, the, the the notion of how we think about those concepts is 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 not nearly extensive enough. The math is is not complete. It's trying to treat uh, game theory on a single level rather than uh, on on a plurality of levels having different scales. And that that first of all has some consequences. Secondly, there is a uh, there, there's a real notion here that uh, you can't do statistics on the kinds of things which we would consider to be existential risks, right? Things that um, are unlikely to happen except once every thousand years and um, you know are, are, are basically not occurring very often, are, are not repeatable enough to be subject to the kind of epistemic techniques that we would use with the scientific method, right? Science requires it to be both observable and repeatable well existential risk as a as a a thing that has such a huge impact is more towards the creation side of the world it's not so much i mean it has an existential impact but it it basically is so much change so fast and so infrequently that it's neither observable nor repeatable right it happens differently every time and uh it doesn't happen very often and, and so the repeatability is effectively nil as far as our observational techniques are concerned so in this particular sense, having a really good notion of the potentiality of things is what connecting back to your, your notion of invitation, right? What do I, what do I invite? What risks do I invite into uh, my current context in terms of how I'm um, you know discussing things or, or 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 you know what kind of technologies I create? And so, in effect, you know to, to go back to 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 uh, a point that was made earlier if I just think about the engineering piece and I don't think about the human dynamics piece, there's a very high level of risk that the things that we build will be even more toxic and more damaging than nuclear weapons. And this is particularly the case when thinking about things like artificial intelligence. At this point, there are actually strong form proofs that we cannot expect and very much should not expect that artificial intelligence would actually be cooperative with any of our interests. That won't actually be of benefit to humankind, no matter how Pollyanna our beliefs about that may be. Um, you know, how much people may think that they have commercial interest to to go in those particular directions, it is a for sure, foregone conclusion that it will not work out the way they expect, not in not in the long term. And this is this is such a critical point because, you know, in 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 in, in the in the balance between descriptive and proscriptive, it becomes possible to know this. And therefore, it becomes possible to make some assessments about the values that we would want to have with respect to what we invite in terms of human potentialities and technological potentialities. Um, in a somewhat esoteric circle, there's a statement, do not invoke what you cannot banish. And in this particular case, I'm basically as a philosopher who has walked the balance between invitation um, as a, as a technologist, you know, I've built things. I've, in, I've invited stuff into the world, so to speak. And um, I, I obviously, as, as an engineer, I think about proscriptive and descriptive quite a bit. And so, in effect, there's a, there's, there's a real recognition here that without having a clear understanding of the balance between those three, we could, a, we could very easily end up uh, inviting things uh, because those boy pharaohs not thinking long term end up basically telling the engineers to build something that is is absolutely dangerous. And and, and now at this particular point, I think we have the tools to really understand and make better choices about this. And that it's critically important that we do so. And that the only way we're really gonna be able to do that is understand the human condition well enough to be able to teach these concepts without getting hung up uh, in the terminology, which I think we both understand as being very relevant. So, I guess that would kind of be the way in which I'd sort of sum up.
2: I, I can just add to that, that philosophy is an art form for good or bad. And, and I started with theater when I was a teenager wrote my own plays when I was like 19 years old. And then I moved on to philosophy like 30 years later, But. It's like, I'm not going to write a banal book that says you should do this and this and this and this. Jordan Peterson could do it, but then he's just about making your bed and fixing your marriage or whatever. These are much bigger issues we're talking about here. So you can't do that. So I, when I said pedagogical, that's what I meant inviting. It's just like, you work as hard as you possibly can. We spend a lot of time and work with this to try to be as accessible as possible because accessibility is inviting in itself. But then when you create a platform by being descriptive, and we mean uh, everything that ever happened in history up until now is resource material. Whatever we can use, if it fits into the narrative, will certainly will be there to describe the bigger overall picture that invite people to see, like it's more like, wow. That's how complex the world is, right, okay? Then people can sort of start moving around on that floor we've created as philosophers and start to create things. And this is why, why I'm celebrating engineers here in response to forest is basically as a dialectical response to the enormous, you know, focus on academics and, and, and you know, philosophers and sociologists and whatever you like. It's like, I, I'm killing my own breed here. But I think after the last 3000 years, especially, we can look back and say it's actually when we built stuff uh, and built stuff and knew what we were planning to do when we built them. For example, we built cities between rivers so that rivers would not go to war with with each other any longer but actually create peace in between. Meaning we built a big temple. And around the temple, of course, soon there was a trading post. And the trading, a trading post is much better than killing somebody. So you would eventually realize that the bloodshed could stop and you could actually have peace between cultures by creating a temple in a city in between valleys. And after a while we realized that these cities were sort of places also for some people to control others from and then became nation states and things. But if you look at history that way we can use all of that material and knowing we're artists, it's a bit like I'm not gonna write a play if I work with theater to tell people what to think. I'm going to write a play basically telling that this is actually how complex and fantastic the world is, and then inspire them. That's the invitation to do something with it. I don't believe in dystopias, for example. I think historically we've proven again and again that dystopianism doesn't work, it's understandable. One of my fellow natives, Greta Thunberg, is probably the most famous dystopian ever by now. Uh, you know. But at the end of the day, that's not going to work. I don't think utopianism works either. And thus we talk about protopianism in our work, we talk about something where you optimize different systems. And obviously one of those systems has to be the planet itself, which has to be the basic system of them all. And if any of these systems operate in a way that the, the system of which is built is then being deteriorated, then, that system has to be self punishing. So it stops itself from acting to begin with. Now that could possibly be implemented in AI, for example. But but we'll see as we go down the road.
1: It's interesting you mentioned philosophy as an art form. On one hand, I'm I'm very much agreeing with you. On another, I noticed that uh, I actually operate far more as an engineer. And that in effect it's 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 been in the capacity to be in both worlds that, that, that a large extent of of the effectiveness has come out. Metaphysics.
2: Yeah. And I can add my response to that, which we're maximized, is anthropology. So I call myself an anthropologist when I start using data, which I do a lot these days. And then I go into the philosopher mode when I'm artistic. So it's probably the same way.
1: Yeah. There's um there's there's a sense of 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 science and and obviously um, know again the the sort of descriptive uh you know observe what is both about the human and the nature and the machinery um i think that i i find myself a little bit uh a little bit more careful about the 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 sort of long-term perspective so in other words uh you know when we when we say celebrate the the uh the engineering or we celebrate the specific art or we uh we, we go and we promote these particular things, you know, this is, this is a little bit where we get back into axiology. And, and so, um, and I, and I mean that in a sense of values, not in a sense of the boy Kings. Um, so, so in effect, a lot of the uh, attention and effect comes back to the, uh, how do we deal with the boy Kings? How, how do we deal with the, the sort of uh, habit formation addiction patterns Uh, you know, neural limbic system overload associated with hypernormal stimulus, and effectively uh, create a capacity on the part of uh, groups of people to be more coherent to make wiser choices, right. So for instance, um, insofar as uh, there's, there's, there's some deep built in biases, both individually, uh, you know, on the part of, of, of specific, you know, individual people, but also on the part of whole groups, right. So there's a, there's a phenomenology to that, that, that to some extent uh, precludes my having the, uh, the notion that I can uh, do more than invite into the present. I can't invite into the future. So I don't find myself thinking about dystopia or protopia, except insofar as, as risk analysis is concerned. Right? Yeah,
2: so, this, is, this is where we work with lynch mobs throughout history. Because the lynch mob is when people get really idiotic in groups and, and in a way we are currently a lynch mob against nature on this planet, right? And then we work with the opposite, which is like, what would then be the sort of good group? What would be the constructive creative group that understands the territory it's walking through? And this is why the Exodus mythologies throughout history are so important to us in our work. And we call it exodology, you know, to have a positive tint on it. Exodology is basically, how do you organize people in such a way that the overall effect of the group again systemic causality is what we call it the systemic causality then works in a positive way meaning at least it is sustainable as a minimum right that is what we call protopianism and the word we use for that exodology, and this is again my science here is anthropology it, it's kind of scary how how closely connected we are we just come in from two different angles and and we work a lot with understanding what does it mean to be exotological and be in a group that actually is aware of how it works as a group and aware of where it's going and aware of understand the territory it's crossing. So it can move from the old to the new, say from an old paradigm to new paradigm, or even from one territory to another territory. But the opposite of that is lynch mobs. And, and this is exactly why our work also touches the political today so much, you know, with a lot of the stupidities that are going on at the moment with these lynch mobs going after one another. I've, I've written about the old left and the alt right now for years and weren't people that think, you know, they could be a problem and they could take the attention away from the far more serious systemic problems we have to the extent that actually systemic problems will occur. You, you know, the disaster will happen. Um, and, and and i think that's important it's really really important to look at how systems operate how human systems operate we work with concepts like old classic concepts like empires nations cities you know anything larger than tribe because usually when we live in a tribe we actually work <laughs> it seems to work we tribes have survived for hundreds of thousands of years these other constructs social constructs are very recent in history and we still have no idea what they are. We still assume that an empire like China or America at the moment is a good thing in itself when it turns out at least the most wealthy people on the planet seem to prefer Singapore, probably for a good reason, right? So, it, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, where data has to be used, number one, in what we call the sensocratic way, like you have sensors everywhere measuring everything. It's all easy to understand the direct causalities and the effects we have as human beings on what we do.
1: I guess this is probably where some of my questions come come to bear. And and this is, uh, you know, first of all, I I love the sort of way that you're describing protopianism here. I. Um, Exodology in the sense of, of leaving something confused me a bit, but I, I get the sense now the way you're You
2: know, paradigm me. shift, for example. Uh, yeah. The people who first get out of the old paradigm and moving to the new paradigm, whoever the winners are with the current shift to digital, they're obviously ahead of everybody else. And at best, the other guys can sort of mimic them. And that's what we call exodologists so We historically get it right.
1: Understood. So in, in this sense, um, when we're when we're looking at the... A systemic understanding of the causal dynamics. And, and I, and I love that you're comparing that to lynch mobs, which is also something I, I think about, right. Is it's the um, re unconscious reactiveness versus the uh, sort of conscious to some extent anticipatory, but, 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 but really clear about, you know, where are we trying to go in the sense of, you know, what are our values? How do we integrate the, the human and the natural and the, and the machine worlds essentially. So, in 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 a sense, the, the 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 notion of focus feels to me the way you're describing it, uh, you know, right on. It's it's like we're cl- we're clearly aligned here. Um, I haven't done obviously very much in the space of trying to uh, connect it back to notions like empire or nation states or or conventional uh, ways of thinking or modeling in that particular space. Um, I've I've since narrowed my focus quite a bit, but I. I'm looking at these same issues, but in in a in much more specific sense of um, you know how does that group actually operate because if, if if we are uh, you know unconscious as to our own nature going into that particular group, we take the uh, sociopathy with us and even though um, you know some people and maybe the entire group uh, understands the causal dynamics of the world and of the machine well. and by world, I'm referring to the natural world largely but, the, the idea here is, is that um, if, if we don't uh, have the anthropological knowledge built in in a way that is uh, itself uh, not just causally reified, I, I want to go more than that, but, but, but at least that, because uh, otherwise you still end up with new formation of boy pharaohs in the new context. And that, of course, just means that we've, we've taken our, the worst parts of ourselves with us into the new realm. And, and so, in effect, I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, you know, to, to what extent has that, uh, that particular dynamic and issue been integrated into your thinking? And what sort of compensatory things have you uh, proposed as a way of, of compensating for that?
2: Well, one of the reasons I'm interested in a concept like empire is that there are some empires that were highly successful, at least they lasted for a long time. And there were others that imploded in bloodshed pretty quickly. And it turns out that for an imperial structure, and technology today is imperial. We wrote a book called The Global Empire in two thousand three. Of course, that title was misunderstood. We knew it would be, and so do you when you write your books too. But anyway, the global empire is basically the result of the Internet Protocol. It is just that technology itself will operate on an imperial global level because technology has no interest in borders. Borders are incredibly human things, right? So. But human beings though, as a reaction to that has gone even more tribal. We go into smaller and smaller groups, which is exactly what's not gonna solve our problems. So you need to kind of figure out what kind of systems are there historically that you could promote and say, well, maybe you should look here not there. And it turns out that during antiquity, Persia managed to create empires that held for about 2,200 years because they were built on certain values. One of the villages the Persians built their first empire, the Achaemenian Empire, was that we should not boil the children of our enemies in, in oil when we conquer their city. We should rather shock them by kissing the feet of their god and invite the king who we just won over and ask him to stay in power to be a local chief in the place we just conquered. And thereby they created the first empires on earth that actually stayed for thousands of years. And uh, and most of our concepts today, I think the West start with Persia, by the way. It's not a Greek thing or anything like that at all. The West is essentially the Middle East. And then the Middle East got a little annexation called Europe and Europe got some cannon boats and a printing press 40 years ago and went absolutely mad and then almost destroyed the planet in the process. But that's what Europe is. Europe is like a tiny little bit of the Middle East. It's nothing else, right? So the Middle East is the West, India and China is the East historically. And it turns out when you look at it that way, the Persian Empire was highly successful. And there was a major mistake at the end of the Bronze Age, which more or less cost probably the end of the Bronze Age. And that's when the Egyptians started mimicking the Persians and invented the Egyptian Empire. Now there's a problem if you have only one river rather than two. Another term for Egypt that one of my assistants, Peter Towson, called it, he called it Monopotamia. He's is very clever, it's understanding that a culture owns one river, will of course think we should only have one pharaoh, and he should both be the priest and the chieftain of the king or whatever, everything in one, and he should worship God, and then everybody should worship him. Now, that lasted for six years, and it was horrible. It was basically Pol Pot's Cambodia during antiquity. Thankfully, it fell apart, just like Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany did, but the problem with these guys, with these boy is they do pop up in history and they cause enormous havoc. Hitler was responsible for almost hundred million people who died in Europe. And thankfully, he stopped the Europeans for thinking so highly of themselves, at least. But you know, the thing is that okay, so you got a system here that lasts over two thousand two hundred years, and you have another system that lasts over six years, and because we are now philosophically, both you and I, we are we have to respond to the communist Chinese dream was the only clearly defined dream for the internet age, where they put a boy for a cook Xi Ping at the top. And all data the Chinese can get their hands on will go to the central Chinese communist computer. That's the conditions for working with tech in Shanghai. Believe me, I've worked there, so I know that. Uh, Okay, that's an idea how to operate the world. It's probably quite feasible that China will go from being the worst criminal of all into actually having policies in place within the next 10 to 50 years where actually they could at least say, well, we're saving the planet. What about the rest of you? In which case, it was very, very hard to respond to them and not let them take over everything. So, We work closely with people in South Korea, Taiwan, and India who really want to create an alternative to the Chinese. Something the Americans are not that concerned with because they think it's like a military conflict or a prestigious conflict, like two guys bullying each other in a schoolyard when the world is on fire. Well, I'm sorry, but the Chinese have figured out the world is on fire. That's part of their game. So we, as philosophers, that's why I also have to work with politics. I have to work and be very anthropological and says that. There are systems. We do culture studies, as we call it. There are systems over time that seem to be much more sustainable than other systems are. And maybe we should look at those first.
1: I think this may be the, the first place where you and I depart. Um, on one hand, I definitely agree that we should absolutely look at history and understand it and study it really well, specifically for looking at uh, what are the kinds of things that have worked and haven't worked and why did they work and why didn't they work and other things you know, like the, the examples and the comparisons you're making, I think are absolutely brilliant. and. Um, your overall assessment, I actually also very much agree with, which is that you know the the, the way in which uh, the United States is conceiving of of the situation is just completely inadequate to the to the needs of the situation. And um, so, you know, first of all, I, I guess uh, out of all of the agreement that I have with what you're what you're saying and what you're doing, which is which is actually most of it, the, the place that I think that I um I'm I'm, I'm coming back to is that in agreement with the earlier notion that you also said, which is that philosophy has not fully accounted for the effect of technology. I therefore don't presume that the historical examples are really going to be as relevant as we would want them to be because of that influence.
2: Oh, I agree, I agree, I agree. My point is that power sharing must be built into the system from day one or power split.
1: I'm with you on that one, okay. That's
2: what the Persians did while the Egyptians did not. That's what Americans still do well thanks to the constitution, hopefully compared to the Chinese. So it starts (laughs) there. That's my point, it starts there. A system is not yeah, a system in itself is not going to be intelligent with a boy fire at the top. That's, that's basically my point. So in any, we know in that- from
1: station. Yeah, in, the,
2: the, rest, the rest I'm totally with you for this. I am a philosopher of technology. I'm probably, I, I came out of the continental tradition of Europe as one of the first major proponents that if we don't do technology, now we can't do ecology, we can't do anything of the really meaningful things we should do as philosophers. I'm not interested in looking down here, you know, and looking at myself, my soul and being existentialist and kind anything. Of we don't have the time for that any longer. So I'm totally with you on the technology aspect. There is a limit to how much we can use sister to understand the current predicaments we're in. Absolutely, and it's only from understanding what it means to be human and organizing humans between themselves we, can, we have. There's a point to it. The rest is down to an entire new field compared to what we had historically.
1: Okay, so so in that sense, I'm, I'm feeling more comfortable with with this approach because the the, the 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 underlying notion here of, of sharing power as a way to Uh, create stability, particularly in the face of, of strong exogenous pressures. Like, so for instance, if you, if you treat technology as a, as an exogenous pressure, which is, isn't technically the case, but in in some respects we can actually model it that way more correctly. There is a, uh, there's, there's a need here for us to actually be not just not a mob in our sense-making or not a boy dictator, right? Because those are the two alternatives that are mostly presented, i.e. you have democracy or socialism, but democracy resembles the mob too much and socialism resembles the boy dictator too much. And neither one of them uh, in all of the attempts that have been given, right? Of which uh, obviously democracy has been tried a lot less but I, but I think you're right to point that uh, it is fundamentally a power distribution question. And more specifically, that it is uh, particularly and principally about um, not just that uh, the power is distributed, but that effectively it is a, uh, and I go back to a a democratic way of thinking about this to say of the people, by the people, for the people, but not as a mob and not as some sort of hierarchical power structure, because those would be the two uh, presented options, but to go back to something like what Tristan Harris would say, what's not on the menu? We're not on the menu yet, right? Hmm. So this... This notion of a third option, which has uh, some of the characteristics of, uh, you know, distributed, decentralized power and authority, um, and it doesn't devolve into either a kind of, uh, you know, hierarchical system with a with a, you know, implicit petty dictator, and, and even though it might not necessarily be explicit, uh, this goes back to the uh, tyranny of structurelessness. Uh, if, if 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 you've if you've read that article, um, so so in effect it's it's kind of like wanting to account for the deep psychology or the deep anthropology well enough to have pre-compensated for the uh, the dynamics that would otherwise centralize power, particularly because technology itself is inherently a centralization force, right? You you've mentioned as you as you as you said earlier. Uh, It does not honor borders. Uh, It will uh, effectively become a a kind of centralized tyranny of sorts. I mean, you mentioned that in your empire uh, concept. Yeah, the global
2: empire. That's what the book is called. That's exactly what it says. Yes.
1: So so in effect, the the notion is, is that the exogenous pressure of technology is inherently centralizing and that centralization is inherently problematic. So in effect, there is a, it's, it's, it's dealing with that issue fundamentally when we have a kind of unconsciousness of our own nature that uh, some of us would prefer centralization when most of us would know that that's not a good thing. And so th- that's kind of the crux of, 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 of a lot of the issues or a lot of the dynamics is, is, is understanding specifically how to deal with that.
2: Guys. Yeah, and it's become, yeah, sorry. It become a lot yeah. easier because uh, because of the Facebook crisis and everything, at least these were very marginal ideas that you and I had with some hackers maybe five years ago, but they're becoming really mainstream today. So that's a good idea. Decentralization is now a term everywhere. So that's a good thing. Yeah, you Tim, you had something.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So really enjoying this discussion. Looks like we're just about coming to a more explicit response to some of those orienting questions. Uh, perhaps not so consciously, I'm not sure if that was, was, it was intended, but those questions, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to read them out because I think, I think it was part of the framing of coming in and it will be interesting for listeners. And I'm not saying we should divert the conversation that way. And I want to make some connections just after the, just after the fact, but I think it will be helpful for this artifact. So the first question was, what are the fundamental dynamics of power in our emerging digital age? And we've begun to lay some of the context to respond to that question. And the second question was in the context of an emerging network of networks, what are the opportunities and risks we face as participants and hopeful contributions and and hopeful contributors to culture? So let me just make a couple of connections here. There was one theme that was coming through. Um, We've mentioned narcissism in relation to the sociopathy of the axial age. And the connection between now narcissism and centralization, I think is interesting from um, a psychological and now technological perspective in the sense that Forrest is outlining its um, tending towards function. Um, But I'd actually like to uh, step back and if possible, ask you each as briefly as possible, though it might not be, possible to actually um, offer a definition of culture. And just before I do that, I'd like to also um, put forward the case that uh, there was something, Alexander, you said at the beginning, um, which was a a link between culture and civilization and that before there were civilizations. And here you're referencing the sort of Bronze Age, I imagine, which sort of roughly 5000, a little bit before. but I, I consider um, our interest to be in what the healthy dynamics of continuity were previous to the Bronze Age, um, because there seems to be also a recognition that there were these um, uh, emergences of a sort of narcissistic or otherwise um, parasitic on the commons type relationship that became structurally imposed and that there's a link there between civilization as well um so um it it would look to me that the um that there's something in the essence of culture which um we ought to consider as stemming from further back and i also am curious to like just to to question the inclusion of certain indigenous perspectives, particularly in Australia, where you have a continuity of, in many respects, a decentralized but coherent culture of network tribes connected through ritual and song line and custom that existed for many tens of thousands of years and actually watched the rise and fall of attempts to centralize in permanent settlements associated with a narcissistic type impulse very much as part of that process that were then rejected um and seen to fail in that sense so um it i i feel like there's something in there that that's that's been a little bit missing from the cauldron of what we've established so far um but as for my piece i'm i'm finished here and just if possible to ask you each um and alexander might have a little bit more to respond to here as i mentioned uh, him perhaps more in particular but could we see if we could define what we mean by culture? This would help bring clarity, at least for me, um, as maybe then we look towards understanding the fundamental dynamics of power in our digital age for the purpose of the kind of balance we're looking for in this healthy protopian kind of sense. So perhaps um, Forrest, it looked like you were there keen to say something to go first.
1: Well, I was, I was thinking, I think I can do the culture thing pretty compactly I get the okay. sense, Alexander, that you would probably want to spend some real time on this.
2: I, I can't explain how we work with tribal mapping because we do as anthropologists. So everybody, everywhere works like Australia. You don't need a word, Tim. Everything, everywhere works like Australia. But we can go back to that. But yeah, Why don't you define that first, forest if you'd like to. Well, Culture I'm- and civilization are the same thing in most languages. To mm-hmm. Germany, it would not make sense to speak about anything else because the word for civilization in German is kultur. So it is the same word.
1: Um, so I, I treat these terms in a somewhat technical way and I, 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 there's, there's a number of overlapping, um, specifics, but if I'm thinking about civilization, I'm thinking about, uh, essentially two fundamental capacities. One, the communicative capacity of how are we civil with one another, right? So, uh, not all interactions have to involve, uh, weapons essentially you can you can talk to somebody and you can engage in trade and and so on the other is the other capacity is the capacity to be in cities and so when we when we uh, saw the book uh, sand talk that came up uh you know they they basically made the point that cities just aren't stable right you, you, you know you're, you're thinking about the continuity uh notion and uh you know, the, so, that, so the book basically rejects the notion of civilization because it depends upon the notion of city. It didn't mention civility very much, but that's uh, sort of written in there with the narcissism piece that was mentioned. And when we think about the, uh, the dynamic of city, and we're trying to say, okay, well, what is it that's needed to stabilize city? Well, we need to stabilize it ecologically. We need to stabilize it energetically in the sense of power flows, not political power, but literally things like food, right? Whether, whether there's enough, you know, food and water and, and so on to just keep the population alive. Um, electricity and things like that. Uh, and then finally, whether it is socially stable. So when, when, when I start talking about socially stable, we're starting to talk about power and culture dynamics. But because the notion of city was invoked as part of the notion of civilization as a fundamental concept, Um, Then we need to actually like pull in the the, the full architecture of what that is, which basically uh, has, uh, as I think about it, three particular levels. Um, You have what would be the the notion of economics or finance, uh, how the the people in the city uh, interact with one another, how they trade power, social power, political power, how the governance works, all of that sort of stuff. Um, Then underneath that, you have infrastructure, so roads, buildings, power grids, water distribution, sewer management, transportation, all that sort of stuff. Um, And then underneath that you have culture, which would be the the, the value systems, the artistic uh, elements, the languages that are used, the uh, idioms, the uh, narratives, all all of the uh, specific ways in which people uh, hold identity and think about themselves as groups and stuff like that. So roughly speaking, um, these three notions of of you know group choice making in the sense of governance politics and economics uh, finance and all that sort of stuff how money moves Um, the notion of infrastructure and the notion of what we're calling culture here uh, are distinct and separable and not interchangeable and there's a dependency relationship that the culture comes first Uh, Alexander you mentioned this when you specifically said you know the first thing they'd build is the church Right. They they create a, a, a an instantiation of the value system that, that moves up into the first level of of infrastructure. So you have the the church building itself is the transition from the cultural layer into the infrastructure layer. And as the infrastructure layer uh, builds out, you know, you, you end up with a trading post thing. And then before long, you have the finance layer emerge. So there's a there's a clear dependency between the the, 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 the layering here. And so, you know, when, when when philosophers and and more particularly people in 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 the the larger uh, the larger world, obviously uh, Alexander has not made this particular mistake, and I, and I but I see it made a lot, is that people propose uh, financial instruments, you know, but Bitcoin and things like that as a as a remediation of world problems, and it's like well. Yeah, that's nice because you're thinking about it at all, but you're thinking about it at the level of finance and governance and you're not thinking about it at the level of infrastructure, except maybe to think about trustless systems. But you certainly haven't gotten down to the level where things are really happening, which is at the level of culture. And without understanding the sort of anthropology of culture, which I think uh, Alexander has, has actually done really well, um, you, you really don't know how to think about architecture You don't know how to think about infrastructure. You don't know how to think about engineering because the engineering is going to result as a result of human beings, engineers, and the social influences that they are experiencing. So in this particular sense, I I think we've both identified uh, that we really want to look at the cultural dynamics to understand how the infrastructure comes into being and what the implications of that infrastructure are going to be uh, in terms of uh, mob based choice making or centralized choice making that happens at the uh, economic and governance layer. Um, And and to sort of kind of connect the dots a little bit uh, because you mentioned tribal uh, dynamics uh, a little bit. So on one hand, I find that uh, in the same sort of way that the the notion of, of civilization was rejected because of its notion of dependence on cities but that was premature because it may be the case, and this is, of course, an open question, but it may be the case that we could actually stabilize the social structure so that it has, uh, as, as, as Alexander put it, uh, the, the right kinds of power sharing characteristics so that it's more like, um, you know, the Persian culture that has, you know, serious endurance rather than, say, something very temporary like, uh, oh, I don't know, the recent administration. And in effect, there's a there's a phenomenology here to, you know, basically uh, stabilizing culture in a way that actually, or, or or the notion of finance and governance that actually works. Um, and, that, and that we can consider the notions of uh, food or resource uh, balance. And we can reconsider the notion of energy balance and, and, and you know, ecology balance and, and energy balance, such that cities could actually work. I mean, I, I don't see that there's any uh, fundamental technological reason you no know, physical principle that's preventing uh, us achieving a stable uh, civilization on the basis of a stable city as a unit um, obviously we've not done that currently we're we're, we're quite terrible at thinking about uh, large-scale chronic problems uh, and, and thinking about design in terms of centuries rather than minutes but the the notion here is that uh, there's nothing in principle that prevents that from being possible but to, to really be able to do that, we need to go beyond um, thinking about it as a finance problem to understand that it is actually a governance problem and that its manifestation isn't going to be uh, at the level of infrastructure. It's going to go all the way back down to the level of, of culture in this, in this dependency uh, sequence that I named earlier. Um, and, and moreover than that, uh, we, we aren't really actually going to be able to work on the cultural level unless we understand the the ecology from which that culture itself arises, right? So we are fundamentally social creatures. We're tribal beings. We have, uh, you know, a, a kind of interdependence upon one another as, as physical bodies to make clothing and to prepare food and to build houses and to do all the stuff that effectively creates all the modern conveniences within which we live and have clear dependence. You know, so in this sense, there's a, uh, a sort of reconciliation that is needed in the sense of having a clear understanding of the dynamics of nature and how it manifests in the uh, evolutionary uh, model of, of the human being that we currently are. And so in effect, by understanding the the, the the social dynamics of that and the anthropological dynamics of that, that we could actually have influence on cultures such that we do stabilize city and civilization. So in this particular sense, I. I, I do distinguish between uh, civilization, city, and civility. I recognize culture as being very much about the, the nature of communicative process, i.e. what the civility is. But in order to get that to work well, we really need to understand nature well from, from, from a kind of biological and, and psychological and anthropological perspective. So in other words, to, to really look at the, uh, the process of communication, going back to say Habermas, by which the reason and rationality of of the group is moved from the mob rule or from the centralized totalitarianism to something which is uh, genuinely distributed at the the choice making level that isn't unconscious like uh, current governance practices or unconscious like current market practices, but is actually genuinely conscious in an integrative sense such that the, ecological perspective folds up from the substrate of the cultural phenomena into the outcome of the uh, finance governance level. So rather than thinking about it as a, a finance or governance layer, I'm actually thinking about it as a new ecology, a sort of meta ecology that emerges out of the being or the essence of the, of the city and the civilization. And so in effect, part of the reason why, uh, we as a species have not been effective at doing this sort of work previously is because quite frankly, we haven't really understood the notion of choice. We've gotten really good at understanding the notion of causation. We have had the enlightenment uh, quote unquote and uh, the the sort of industrial revolution and the use of mathematics and technology and science to understand the world in a purely causal way. But all of those objective outwardly focused uh, things um, haven't prepared us for understanding our own true nature. And religion hasn't done that either. Because religion is no more better at understanding the nature of the subjective and the nature of choice and the fundamental senses of which I'm referring that go back to things like uh, what is the uh, essential human condition in the sense of cells, tissues, and organs. You know, if we're, if we're looking at trying to understand why people behave the way that they do, I'm sure we could talk about it in terms of Uh, divine emanation. But I think to some extent, we really need to understand it in terms of things like uh, neurochemistry and, you know, has a person been exposed to trauma? Have they been exposed to essentially the right sort of nutrients so that they're not feeling anxiety because they're missing something in their body that is required for them to feel comfortable in their skin? So in this particular sense, I think that to a large extent, there is an entire field of study that has barely been touched on, that is absolutely essential for the continuance of the species. Because we haven't at this particular point really gotten that good at communicating. And so in effect, this exercise of of Alexander and myself sitting together is is an exercise of communication because we're in a sense comparing notes. I'm, I'm learning from what he's explored and feeling validation because he's found that the things that I think are important are actually important. And I feel that there's a very good likelihood that I've just had an influence on him and his thinking as well in saying all of this.
2: Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, the tribal mapping project that Sadiq Vista took was that we took our team around the world to different climate zones, the Arctic, the jungles, everywhere, and studied the 17 different tribal communities that still are around. It's like, this is like the last opportunity you have in history to study tribes that are not completely you know, in the jeans and T-shirt and Wi-Fi mode. Uh, So it turns out that they were very similar. And uh, then we just compare the data with contemporary human beings. We actually use data for millions of people. It turns out that people without knowing it subconsciously are behaving exactly the same way. So when people feel safe and at home and creative and at their best, it's usually when they're at their most tribal. this proved that, you know, the best evidence you could ever have against racism, for example. You could just get that out of the way to begin with. Because we were the same species until at least 30,000 years ago, then split over a few continents, and a few trade routes and things made us mix still, and, and that's humans. That's what humans are. Um, in the tribal mapping project, it was very clear that if you're 19 years old and you're fully resolved, there's very likely after a rite of passage that an old woman will come up to you and smack you in the face and tell you you're nothing without her. Uh, so narcissism is not a problem in a tribe. <laughs> you know, In Africa, they give them a boga, the young guys, just to get them into shape. So they bend down and then start serving the tribe. Which would human beings ultimately want to do? We want to be contributive, to some kind of tribal community that's fundamentally human. That's why against individualism, I think it was a terrible mistake to follow Descartes in the 17th century. I think many of the mistakes he made was a bad religion called individualism. And it came out of another proper religion called Christianity. I, I don't agree with Forrest that we could just throw religion out the door because there are actually better alternatives, but the better alternatives were the ones we mostly ignored the last 3000 years, but they're out there. We can go I, into I them find that. I'm
1: not, I'm not throwing religion out at all. I, I, no, I, I hate no. religion in the sense that I think you are, which is, how groups of people come together and integrate. So the, the sense yeah. that you're using it, I, I'm with you.
2: Yes, that's the case, exactly. The, how, how do you, how, it's narratives again. It's a narrative about the tribe itself. And those narratives are pathic, they're logical and they're mythical, but in different ways. But it, it's all about priests essentially have been trained forever, at least since civilization was born, to try to create narratives that make people don't kill each other. You know, so, Why can't we prevent the war at least another week or so and maybe have, you know, a festival or something. That's what priests have always tried to do, at least when they're good at it. And that's what religion essentially is as well when different religions clash or different tribes clash. So we're comfortable with the smaller us. Narcissism is not a problem in tribal community. So when does it become a problem? It becomes a problem with permanent settlement. We get written language. And because we get written language, we can store information on a level we never did before. And we can learn from previous generations mistakes. So we don't have to make those mistakes again. And this is Zoroastrianism. This is Zoroaster 3,700 years ago, the first one of the prophets who basically declared that the son could actually create a world that's better than the father. Now, Forrest might not agree with me and with Zoraster, but that's at least an idea. And it's the only new idea ever. Because the idea before that was just that everything returns to the same. It's called Hinduism still today. It's called nomadology in our work. Nomadology is essentially the religion of the nomadic tribe. Everything is always the same. You're born and you live and you die somebody's born you live and you die and it's recycled and you can reincarnate it or whatever you don't care it's just an eternal return of the same as nietzsche said and that was the religion until somebody three thousand seven hundred years ago came up with the idea that well the son's world could be different from the father's for good or bad ash or Druj in persian uh because we have more information available than the previous generation did now that that idea easily transfers eventually to China and India. And this is essentially the birth of the East. And essentially we get a West in response to that, thanks to the Greeks and the Hebrews and the Phoenicians. And and these cultures, especially the Western cultures, interestingly, took on to the idea of the event. Something can happen that changes history forever. It might be Armageddon. That's what we call August 6, 1945 today. We live in the shade of Armageddon. But it could also be the somebody can invent a technology that changes the world forever so that everybody in the world can communicate with everybody else, including finding out what is true and false in a way we were never able to do before, which hopefully is where the internet is heading eventually. So it's, it's in the city, uh, the crime occurs uh, because it's much larger. And the connection between the old woman who smacks you in the face when you're 19 has disappeared. Clearly, more than ever, it's a problem that we have disconnected between generations. Everybody talks about wisdom all these days. All I'm saying is that wisdom is just long life. It's just life experience. And especially if you have several people with long life experience around you, you have wisdom around you. That's what wisdom is. So what happened in the cities was well, that this disappeared. Anarchy was the result of that. Cities were incredibly violent for a long time. They still attracted people in because they were trading posts. There, there was stuff to be made. You, you could climb the hierarchies, but they were very violent places. Until people started figuring out that we can actually control the anarchy. And the way you did that was through the law. And the law was written down. Thereby, the law got the aura of being something sustainable or lasting forever, eternal. eternal. And you would in the hurt to it. We started interpreting nature as if it was full of laws as well, because we had laws between us. And it turned out that at least crime went down, there was less violence, more trading, more copulation, populations grew, and production of food, production of food here, increased dramatically. And of course, that model worked in the sense that if we don't disregard completely that it was exploitative because it wasn't a major problem until an industry came along, then at least it worked in the sense that it created larger populations than any other model did. Mesopotamia alone, 4,000 years ago, had half the world's population. Now, that means the river valleys with large population could create great armies and these big armies could then fight everybody else. And except for a so few nomads that had horses, up until the Mongols, 600 years ago, they could cause havoc to these river valleys. But the conflicts between the Mongols, on the, you know the nomads on the steppes and the river valleys lasted until the plague of the 14th century. After that, The cities could even have cannon boats and much bigger weaponry and also started training soldiers to read and write and count, meaning there were better killer machines than ever. And finally, civilization won over the nomads. That's history, essentially. Now, my proposal is basically, why don't we then go back and study how we lived for 60,000 years in tribal communities? It was probably tough like hell, but that's where we were shaped. That's where our genetics were shaped. That's called sociontology today, the start of the original tribe. Now, we can compare that to civilization that has a written language period we call feudalism. It has a printed, mass-distributed language period we call capitalism. And now we're leaving capitalism for a system that we call attentionalism. This is incredibly complex to explain. But just just by giving you an example like Google search, the ads are like desperados, right? We don't push the ads. We hate ads more than ever. We hate capitalism we go for attentionism because attentionism goes into the sacred realm of directly connecting human beings to one another without trading with one another. The problem is that everyone wants that attention. So now capitalism is trying to move into the most sacred realm of human existence. We'll fight it back. We hate Mark Zuckerberg on Facebook. Instead of helping our children, he employed thousands of psychologists to turn our children into addicts. Another one of these boy pharaohs, evil guy, yeah. you know, any Christian Republican woman in Texas today is an enemy of Google and Facebook. And I share them on because I think decentralization is what we desperately need. So that's essentially we can then take from history, but we have to understand the specific predicament we're in right now as specifics or hyper technological environment we're in so we cannot go back and just take something from 3000 years ago and apply it on the world today and think it's going to work no human psychology is something we can learn a lot about from history but not the technological environment where it's very very specific and must be understood exactly that way
1: i think in just general response to to all that first of all that was delightful to hear and um, you touched on a number of points, which uh, brought a smile to my mind. <laughs> so, um, I, I think that maybe one way to sort of compare and contrast our approaches a little bit is, is that um, where you're looking at history as kind of ways of understanding the human condition. I, I'm also doing that, but I'm I'm actually doing it through the mediology of principles. So, in other words, I, I from this 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 very abstract core work. So you mentioned the imminent metaphysics very early on, but what that gave me was a set of tools to identify principles very, very well. So this is where we move from the descriptive to proscriptive side, because I can, I can look at history in a descriptive way and I can say, okay, here are my hypotheses about what happened. And then I can test those hypotheses by looking at other historical events. Um, and that works recursively, you know, reasonably well. I mean, you, we, we can learn some real things from that. Um, the alternate method, which has been the one that I've been exploring uh, more specifically, is, is to, uh, starting from this underlying hypergeometric geometric core, so to speak, uh, to abstract a series of principles as they would be projected into the realm of uh, the anthropological, the psychological, the relationship between man, machine, and nature as, as prior principles, and then to look to see whether those principles reify our understanding of history. So in other words, We can look at historical events and say, does this principle help us to understand what actually happened? And if it does, does that help us to understand the things that happened around it? And does it essentially increase the clarity of the narrative? Does it connect the narratives together? Does it deepen our insight? And so to that extent, we would feel that, yeah, we actually had the right principles. Like we were were effectively confirming the underlying geometry and topology of the relationships, both in the field of, of the actual events of history, but also the, the field of the principles that, that gave us the capacity to understand that history. So in a sense, we don't have to come at history just from a descriptive point of view anymore. We can we can essentially describe it using these different lenses and then test the lenses out. And so in, in a sense, there's this uh, this process where now through this, we can effectively get some very strong uh, evidential confirmation as to the specificity of the principles that are applied and could be applied to new situations. So in effect, it's a little bit like um, a, a kind of constitutional convention where the founding fathers got together and they said, okay, we studied all this, this mysticism and this religion, and we, we've, 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 we've had some really horrible experiences with Mother England and uh, now we want to do things differently. And we're going to basically do that by taking the best of what we believe to be the case, uh, checks and balances, you know, three bodies of uh, three, three branches of government. Uh, you know, of,
2: that was a Persian innovation.
1: Well, it, it could very well be. And, and it was the French
2: that, brought it to America. It's originally how the Persian Empire operated by the three centers of power.
1: Awesome. Yeah. But, the, but the point is, is that somewhere in history, whether it came from uh, Persia, you know, we could, we could just roll the clock back, right? somewhere along the way when the Persians uh, were coming up with these ideas and they became reified and philosophers thinking subsequently, you know, they, they each, each generation of philosophers have uh, sort of worked with what they've learned from previous generations and have projected it into, into the current circumstances that they live. In this particular case, it's a bit like I can stand outside of time and I can look at even the very earliest works that, that the Persians, because they invented it, right? Somewhere, somewhere, and maybe they got it from somewhere else. But somewhere in human history, it was invented. It was a evolutionary response that some group of people or some individuals basically thought clearly and came up with some ideas about how to do things better. As you mentioned, there is a kind of progress that that maybe the son can actually do better than the father. And this idea here of uh, what those concepts are, right? The three branches of government and the the notion of checks and balances, those concepts themselves are practices that are projections of principles. And so, you know, we can codify them in a set of rules and laws and and, and sort of heuristics of how to relate to one another and economic systems and so on. You know, the notion of ownership, all of these heuristics are effectively uh, rules that come out of practices that themselves came out of principles.
2: I can even, even point you to where it starts, if you like. Uh, according to legend, Zoroaster was a priest, and Vishthaspa was a king, um, isolated themselves for 23 years, construct the first monotheistic religion. And they walked out of the door, well prepared, the way we wish we would be today, and created the first Persian prayer. And they realized the enormous capacity that was inherent to the fact that information was not written down and stored. On a level they've never seen before. And, and out of that came the first Persian emperor and that idea. And power would then be split in three rather than two, because with three, if somebody becomes narcissistic, as Tim pointed out, they are the other two would then unite against the third. But it also mimics really well how human beings operate. The genius of Oraster, I think, is in the fact that human beings operate in three realms, as Chat Lacan, the psychoanalyst would say, they operate within the symbolic in the imaginary and 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 the real. The real here should be, we should need citation marks because it's not real like in reality. It's more like the real that constantly surprises us. I would, I would always give September 11th as an example of the real. We had a fantasy about America and the West operated and suddenly somebody came in and cut our two dicks off in New York City. And we were at a shock state for the next 10 years doing all the mistakes they wanted us to do because we weren't prepared, that's the real. So the real power is actually the power over the actual resources, as Karl Marx would say in a given society. That would have been capital up until now, it's becoming a tension before that it was land ownership, the real assets like mines and things like that. On both of the the real, we have the imaginary. That's what most people say when you usually say who's got the power. The person they point out has got the power would Biden, Trump or an old king of Sweden or whatever. That's where the imaginary power resides. And the third one is the symbolic power. And that's what we talk about here, we're philosophers. That's the narrative. Who's in control of the narrative? I used to be the church in the past here in the West, then it was academia. And now academia is dying quickly too. And we probably will have a new sort of digital real real power, digital imaginary power, digital symbolic power, the way we had an urban nation state, real and urban nation state, imaginary urban nation state, symbolic power. But what's great about it, there is actually, I would argue, a built-in um, a tri- triangle here of powers actually within our own minds. We ourselves are trying to locate our position in the world and try to identify who we are and the groups we will live within the communities we live in also try to find these three. So it's actually quite helpful the human beings probably from the original tribe had this idea there were three. It's interesting to see, for example, if you study the, uh, the Hebrew Exodus out of Egypt, In the original story, that was just Moses. It was very likely an Egyptian guru or sect leader of some kind. This was an Egyptian sect that, you know, were disappointed with Akhenaten or something, but still wanted to believe in the one God. So they left Egypt and eventually they rewrote their history. But after the Persian influence on the Hebrew culture, they rewrote the Exodus and had three siblings. There's Moses, there's Aaron, and there's Miriam. And of course, Moses is the Congress. Aaron is supposed to be the president, and Miriam is supposed to be the Supreme Court. So you got these really, really strong thinking about principles here. You got these really, really strong triads that constantly come back in history, and all the sustainable systems, the reasonable systems, lasted a long time. Where you could certainly work with principles like exploitation, seem to have this character to them.
1: Well, I'm, I'm I'm with you on all that. I guess my uh, my my general observation is just that. If we, uh, first of all, agree that the triangles and, and the sort of triadic relationship, I mean, obviously I'm sure you know that my own work is based on that very directly. Um, so in effect, these principles are gonna emerge in multiple times and multiple people's descriptions and so on. If
2: we- I should, add to- that, I should add here that Forrest is a dialectical genius and we do dialectics, you work with three. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you.
2: You do that all the time, it's very good, yes
1: in regards to the triple of the relationship between man, machine and nature and insofar as prior to machine appearing on the scene, you know the, the machine part of it really wasn't evident. I mean it, there was system and and obviously city is a kind of system. but the the, the notion of machine effectively coming out of balance in, in relationship right now machine is becoming very dominant in the sense that, you mentioned already that many people are addicted to things like Facebook or social media in one form or another. So, if we are effectively going to uh, develop a new triadic infrastructure that has stabilization because it is adhering to uh, deep principles that actually hold in the structure of the universe itself, um, then you know to the extent that. Uh, we are dealing with new context, civilization, and and technology in particular is creating a new context that the uh, the use of prior ways of thinking about those triads needs to, in effect, be reapplied in the new context. And so, to some extent, to to do that well, to have confidence that we have uh, put together a model of how to do distributed power sharing, uh, checks and balances uh, in the context of of uh, unusual manifestations of technology, uh, we're gonna need to basically know what those principles are and apply them in a far more conscious way than we ever have as a species previously. So so in this particular sense, it's like I I see a great deal of value in in the narrative and the notion of narrative and the notion of, of studying history and anthropology in these particular scenes. But I also feel that there's a kind of limit. And the limit is that um, while we can be very, very good at understanding the past, we need to be able to move beyond the past to imagine the future that, that, that we require. This goes back to the uh, existential risk piece and, and pulls in uh, some of the work of, of uh, Snowden, for example, where he's basically talking about safe-to-fail probes. We don't really yeah. get- the, the the
2: way, just, just a little, a small passage here. Uh, the, way, the way we do it is that we split Nietzsche's constant of will to power. I said Nietzsche was basically sloppy. And we split the will to power into will to intelligence and will to transcendence.
1: Just Will to
2: intelligence is is collecting all of history, all the data we could possibly have, all the way up till now. Will to transcendence is imagining the future. So I totally agree with you on this one. That's that's the terminology we use.
1: Okay, that makes sense. I, I guess just out of curiosity, was there a third split?
2: Not, not with the will to power, not necessarily, not that it makes sense, but that's because we're dealing here with phallus and, and phallus here compared to matrix, where we come from and where we're going, psychoanalytically speaking, it's we'll called we'll the, two-headed, the, two-head, the, two-head, the two-headed phallus. The two-headed phallus is that for any group to be led by anybody, the leaders must be two and they must, must be connected to one another. One of them is the leader of the mind, one is the leader of the body, one, one is the chieftain, one is the priest, and one then the priest is essentially the character who's the world to intelligence personified. So it's a really, you know, a great mind person who does that, who then respects and admires the best of the mud body people who's then the, the chieftain or the king. And that other power is the world to transcendence. And so we put the world to transcendence, actually, we put that on physical power itself in connection to nature.
1: I think this is this is again a place where I, I feel we may have diverged because there's a uh, you know so 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 when we think about again safe to fail probes that we only really get one chance right with with the level of technology that eventually there's there's just a break there's breach yeah that that in effect i i don't feel based upon the principles which i am in now now in possession of yeah that that even the level of centralization associated with just two leaders or even two narratives so in, a, in effect the, the level of decentralization to which i'm I'm interested in uh, achieving is a kind of um, a level of, of, of notion of social process that it doesn't actually have contingency on leadership or narrative at all.
2: No, no. the pointer is by teaching the first split, you can then go on splitting.
1: But it, but it won't. You see that the forces of technology and centralization are very strong. Yes. So in effect, with, without creating a very good, coherent model of how to do decentralized uh, authority distribution or, or, or just the notion of resource distribution in a distributed way, right, in a way that doesn't become corrupted to private interest, to, to, to the forces that would uh, otherwise motivate people to think selfishly, to think individually. Um, and I'm not saying that in a pejorative sense. I'm just saying that in a biological sense. If you, if you look at You know the, however many millions of species there are, there are very few species that are actually social. There's there's little uh, room for for uh, individuals of any species to think altruistically. But if we are going to uh, create a kind of distributed choice making process, the net effect does have to actually be altruistic uh, with respect to the ecosystem. That, um, in, employative sense, uh, as as actually occurring, so. In, in that particular degree, there is... We
2: there... we call that the messianic.
1: Well, it, when, when I hear the notion messianic, and this may be misunderstanding you, but I, I still think of a messiah as a person.
2: No, yeah, but it isn't. That's because you inherited from Judaism the messiah. The messianic well, starts good. with Persians too. It's called the solchiont. The solchiont is a function that steps into history at under very spectacular or specific circumstances, where the world to transcendence and the world to intelligence have to collaborate very tightly because the unique, the unique situation demands it. That's called social in ancient Persian. And the Jews were so inspired by it that they thought Osiris the Great as a sociot when he liberated the Jews out of Babylon and they and he sponsored them to build the second temple. That then became Mosheya, named after Moses, the Mosheya, the, the idea of that one leader could lead a people. Yeah, for smaller people like the Jews, it's like a nation that's absolutely possible. So the messianic characters throughout history have led a certain people or something like that. But for the entire world, which was Zoroaster's idea in Persian, in, in Zoroasterism, Zoroaster's idea was that under specific circumstances, usually at the end of the empire, before the fall of the empire, the empire can be saved one last time and then go on for another thousand years through a function called social. And that's what we call the messianic. And that, I think that's where you're heading here. So we're aware of that.
1: Well, I'm it, I, I, again, I'm, the, the, the will to power, the will to knowledge, the, the, the notion here is, is that those are experienced at an individual level. And I'm
2: no I'm no 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 that that's Nietzsche does that mistake, yes, himself, but that's because Western thinking after Descartes and Kant is completely based on the idea of an individual, an individual philosopher thinks about himself like he's very narcissistic. I am totally against Western individualism. I have worked all the way through to go back through history, especially immersed myself in Chinese Indian philosophy, where it's like the idea of this, an this individual. This is where I come indigenous. in the confusion
1: because yeah, when when I when I hear you speaking. I find myself encountering a lot of terminology that on one hand seems to indicate a clear awareness of uh, needing to move beyond individualism. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't see the sort of corresponding patterns that actually describe decentralization, right? So for instance, the, the notion of empire or the notion of, of, of you know narrative are both to me highly centralized concepts or concepts referring to Uh, something indelibly associated with a centralized methodology.
2: Yeah, that is why when we know technology is going towards empire, that's also what we need to watch out carefully because we are not. Human beings are not, actually, and that's why empires always fall apart in the sense that a dictator tries to control a large territory with a large population. At the end of the day, we are naturally decentralized. We are tribal, and that can play to our advantage when we look at the current situation. But these tribes need to collaborate to create this sort of systemic causality you're asking for to solve the current problems. Uh, Does that make sense?
1: Yes, it does, but I'm still wondering how you implement the the compensation. So for instance, I'm not saying compensation in the sense of an economic exchange, but a Mm -hmm. compensation for the forces that prefer centralization. On a biological level, biology does really, really well As you said, it, it, it naturally manifests uh, Gaussian distributions, right? It it naturally prefers decentralization, but when you get to anything to do with technology or with causation or with human beings in social structures, such as cities, the push from an economic perspective and from a uh, psychodynamic perspective is always going to be uh, very strongly in favor of centralization in one form or another. And so in a sense, there's a, there's a need for us to, if we're, if we're understanding the principles particularly well, to see the application of the principle at this layer specifically. Because literally anything short of that just means that we're continually caught in this cycle of reincarnating cities over and over again until we basically blow them up so thoroughly that there's no earth left for them to sit on.
2: Yeah, okay. My response to that is that these are dialectical processes. And the one we're working with is called sensocracy. So, is is the Internet of Things, the satellites everywhere. So, if we collect data through sensors everywhere connected to our senses, we create a sensocracy. That's, that's where we're heading with most things anyway. What's called politics in the past will hopefully then be replaced by sensocracy. Now, the sensocracy, there are some people who have very good ideas how they want to establish a sensocracy. This time, the Egyptians got word first. That is the communist Chinese model. No, we, we owe them to it that they have to want to do things. We don't believe it is very sustainable in the long run because we don't believe boil are a good idea. And by the way, we love something called freedom. Okay, so what are the alternatives? This is what we're working on. And at least the great thing is that once you centralize all the data about a certain system, as long as you distribute the data also back, players within that system. For example, you don't mind giving away your data as long as you give it a five, away to five competing agents rather than to just one. In China, you give your data to one central computer. You can't do anything about it. unless You just get off the grid completely. In systems where you have a lot of different competing different agents that are provided with data and it's be de-personified, hope much more willing to give it away. Why? Because you will also have a much more honest and truthful view of the world while algorithms are free and open organized in such a way to understand the world better and i think that's absolutely necessary i think to get out of the whole you know even controversy about ecology there has to be more facts and the more facts that are there the harder it is to get around the arguments and at the end of the day that's the only thing that will convince humans to get on the move even if they then are decentralized in the different communities, those communities can then cooperate and, and operate in such a way. That they, we know for a fact that doing that results in this, for example. Well, that makes it a lot easier to motivate people to act. And that's where I leave it. I, what I do is that I, I write a descriptive philosophy on this. Then I go on tour to engineering universities around Europe and they're packed. And then I just say to the engineers, I've, I have, I have, I have a, a mission here. If you want to be part of a messianic project, which is called Saving the Planet. And the idea of Saving the Planet is not to sit down like great and We rather to inspire people to try to build themselves out of it.
1: I'm, unfortunately, there were parts of that that were a little hard to hear because your um, internet signal gave out just briefly. Um, I did manage to pick out all the pieces I do believe Um, Tim you caught that too I believe yes
0: yeah that's right I think I think if there's a piece that requires clarification it's literally just the last couple sentences with respect to the particular phrasing of inviting participation in the messianic project um, to engineers so effectively what's What's of consideration here is uh, <laughs> I suppose are the particulars of that invitation with respect to the um, the affordances of the the architecture of that actual structure and I don't believe that has been entirely spoken to yet and I believe that's possibly where Forrest's response is going
1: to take us and then Alexander you can then clarify I think just just checking with you that the Tim summary sounds right to me is that correct to you
2: Yes, we call it ecotopianism as a constructive response to environmentalism to okay. kickstart a dialectical process of creative thinking between the two poles.
1: Got it. I, I'm, I'm definitely of the motion that, that Tim was, was recommending. So um, I, I feel for, for you a sense of arrival at this point that you, know, you say this is as far as we've gone with it. Um, so so in, in this particular sense, using the language of, of, of this as a position um, and and to just give you a sense as to where I've gone, so so to me this is about halfway through my work. Um, so from here I've gone considerably farther. I, there's there's like a, a whole series of of subsequent stages that that this has gone through. Um, what I, what I can report back about some of the later stages is that it turns out that there are there are certain risks in the methodology itself that need to be handled. So for example. Um, like with looking at sense, sensocracy, for example, I've, I've been over the years, I've had uh, people propose to me various sense, sensocracy type models where they would do sensor arrays to collect information about uh, biological process, uh, you know, cultural process or economic process. And that one way or another, these things would, would filter back to a kind of uh, triple net accounting or whole systems accounting or, um, you know, integrative, uh, thinking about how to uh, essentially balance and distribute the flows of energy and particularly of atoms. Now, on, on a lot of levels, approaches like that sound really good. There's, there's a lot of goodness that can come out of those. However, in almost all of the descriptions of such things that I've heard or seen or, or had presented, um, and, and unfortunately including yours, is that it doesn't feel to me that there was a clear sense of how to deal with the inevitable fact that the information itself, as you mentioned, the attention uh, aspects itself, that the, the economic forces are pointed at it so strongly, as, as you mentioned, that the economy is, is ready to usurp the uh, attention, uh, what would you refer to as the attention economy? I don't remember the term. You no, used. no,
2: no, 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 I'm not. That's Tristan Harris. I insist that attention cannot be an economy.
0: Well, Addiction
2: understand. can be, obviously. Addiction is an economy at the moment. There are all kinds of terrible new economies around there. Attention is precisely concerned with what humans will not buy and sell. That's what everybody's after today. That's why marketing is dying. Advertising is dying. We hate spam. The spam filters are up. I think spam filters and ad blockers, together with Edward Snowden, are the most messianic things we've invented the last twenty years. This
1: isn't. This isn't. I mean, your comments are relevant, but they're not. They're not getting to what I'm trying to get to. So, so in other words, I I I agree with your response, but the the thing I'm actually trying to get to is 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 actually just in a different space. So I, I I don't. I mean, I appreciate your answer, but it's it's not what I'm needing. What i what I'm looking for is, in a sensocracy or in any system where data is collected, that there is uh, forces that move against centralization or the accumulation of power or the reemergence of foci of control that would uh, effectively result in a destabilized system, but yet at a meta level. And so in effect, there's a what, what I have done is, is, first of all, noticing that particular absence. So in other words, I'm, I'm basically saying, okay, where I arrived at was, this is actually a question that's important. And what would we need to answer a question like this? Like what principles would need to be brought to bear? And how is it that, like, what is the basis of my skepticism? So for instance, I can, I can articulate particularly that part of the dynamic is, is that we're using technology to try to address technological issues. So, in one fashion or another, we are effectively dealing with using complexity to try to contain complexity. We're using strategy, but strategy is itself a kind of technology. Using strategy to try to deal with strategy. Or using system to try to deal with system. And and so, first of all, you know, we 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 notice immediately that there is a, a distinction between complicated and complex. This goes back to Snowden again, and that. First of all, the complicated is never going to contain the complex. The complex will eventually exceed the complicated. I know you know what this is, right? Yeah. But moreover, even if we were to live at just the level of using uh, complex to deal with complex, right, so that we didn't have just the, 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 the naive case of of trying to use blind system to deal with organic realities, that in effect, there's a still... Uh, a, a fundamental emergence that's happening within the organic reality of the, of the complex, such that centralized control mechanisms and points of articulation are still going to be leveraged in weaponized ways. Corruption will still happen. So in effect, there's a, there's a, there's a phenomenology here that I can't use complexity or complicated to contain complicated because no matter how I think about it, that ends up being an arms race which is why most people try to go to uh, artificial intelligence as a, as a response because you know, that's called the preeminent. It's like, well, it's gotten beyond the point at which we can deal with it as humans. Maybe we can leverage the machines to deal with the machines because they'll understand themselves better, right? And it turns out that there's no way to win such an arms race. Like there's, there's, there's fundamentally, it, it goes beyond the human and, and the human gets divested from the system guaranteed every single time i mean this this comes down to a level of mathematical proof there's a level of rigor to this that, that basically means that this entire trajectory of trying to use any form of strategy to deal with these, these these things ultimately fails and cannot not fail so so this is part of the reason why i have skepticism about the approach the, the approach
2: i love you for this forest
1: <laughs> okay I'm, I'm we, we might
2: we, we might not so much disagree as in more that I'm operating with not only logos, but with mythos and pathos. And my job partly as with the theater background and anthropologist is to create some hope here in a way you're darker than I am here. Uh, but it's, it's the hope incredibly comes. fascinating. The hope this, this, is, this is certainly where you also will come into our next book because we are obviously writing on turning and we're neutral about it.
1: This could be a yeah, pharmacon yeah. again. I, I am yeah, neutral here. But what I can do, and this is, this yeah. is the good thing. So, so at this level, it looks like I'm very dark. But the metaphysics has given the door. It's about eight hours to go here. No, I'm, I'm not going to take that long. I'm going to take maybe five <laughs> minutes. So the, 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 the thing is, is that it turns out that there is another way. I don't have to use complicated to deal with complicated. I can use clear clarity transcends complex and so in
2: effect, that there's... is my difference between the will to transcendence and will to intelligence because you're basically saying you cannot take a will to intelligence and bump it up against another will to intelligence and another will to intelligence and then try to solve a problem which requires a will to transcendence
1: yeah that's right that 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 game yeah. will never win
2: no, exactly, I agree actually. That's why we've separated the two as we split Nietzsche's will to power because then we have two building blocks to build from and the very different desires to begin with. Machines can only decide the will to intelligence by the way. I can't see a foreseeable future that any machine would
1: have a will to transcendence. We're agreed here. Yeah. To basically connect this a bit if you basically have, as has been, and for all of practically all of history, the case that strategy manipulates culture with the use of vision, that, that in effect you will just end up with a cessation. I mean, this is this is part of what I was trying to communicate in one, of, one or two of the emails that were going to the list. It is, necessarily the case that culture infused by vision derives strategy. That there is a kind of transcendental design that emerges out of the culture because of the clarity of the vision. And so in effect, as, as a result, I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about and, and, and really working with the dynamics of the relationship between culture and vision and mitigating against the effects of the relationship between strategy and culture. So in, in this particular sense, there's a, there's a kind of axiom two dynamic that is fundamentally necessary here. And we've the, the, the human species has been going against this. And if, if you look at the flow of culture as prior to um, strategy, you end up with, 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 with sanity, right? That's your distributed decentralized power actually happening but if you start with uh, strategy as prior to culture, that is your centralized, um, you know, complete miasma of dictatorial, uh, you know, the, the whole centralized rule system that, that, that we both know can't work. It can work yes. short term, but the world burns as a result. Yes. And if you have if you if you try to have vision lead culture, but the vision isn't actually vision, that's your mob rule, right? You you don't really have, it, you you can't achieve decentralized uh, vision in the sense that uh, you 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 actually accidentally achieve centralized um, strategy.
2: There's we call a, these the anergic and the hypertech; these two different types, or authentic vision and false vision.
1: Well, I, I I'm not sure about false vision, but I but I can point out that. When maybe maybe the notion some, of, some, uh, something
2: pretends to vision but isn't
1: okay. Yeah, uh, a mob that is in effect in reaction to you know like some stimulus that's false vision from from my perspective.
2: Adolf Hitler.
1: Yeah, perhaps <laughs> there, there's a there's there's a sense here that um, there needs to be a right relationship between vision, culture, and strategy, and that this has not been achieved yet. And. Part of the nature of what makes that particular dynamic actually work is not so much about the data flows. And it turns out not to even be about the narratives or about the the leadership creating the narratives. That in effect you can dispense with leadership and you can dispense with narrative almost altogether if you come back to the ground truth of being. And by ground truth of being, I'm talking about like deeply having clarity about the nature of the human. This is coming back to, you know, the anthropology perspective and so on and so forth. But not in the sense of, of you know, we we use the the, the history and the and the you know the tribal understandings which you're, you're talking about brilliantly. And you know, we 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 understand those things as essentially infusing our knowledge of the principles of what it is to be. But at that moment, once we have those principles, or once we've at least in this case, have tested those principles from a yet even more abstract source that we've in a sense validated them. We move through the, we've gone from the omniscient knowing, through the transcendent back into being. So in effect, our actual embodied state, and accounting for the uh, psychology of how people are today in the context of technology, right? If we, if we don't genuinely understand the reasons that people are addicted to Facebook right now or Reddit right now, if we, don't, if we don't deeply understand the principles that created that as an outcome, both at the level of, you know, not just business dynamics and, and how engineers, uh, you know, as, as Aspies, for example, may create something differently depending upon the kinds of encouragement they get or what their paycheck is. There's a, there's a point here where we can go deeper than that sort of phenomenon and look at what are the dynamics that emerge out of these, these fields of relationship that are either going to create things that are going to will towards centralization or actually manifest an awareness of uh, choice making that is, that is genuinely that, right? You, cho- just
2: formulate, you just formulated the triad of vision strategy and culture in itself.
1: Well, I did, I did it specifically. So the, imagine,
2: the imaginary is what you call vision here. The symbolic is what we call strategy here and culture itself is the real. Okay. About the human condition itself. It's brilliant, yeah, we totally agree. We we,
1: we do, we're, we're using we overlapping do agree. language. We do.
2: Yeah, this is, this is the direct result of working with these very, very simple uh, starting points. Man as the constant and the machine as, as the variable. It, it's, that's where we arrive. We arrive in the same place.
1: It's beautiful. There's, there's, there's no question that the language overlaps because of the triadic nature and because of the axiom three foundation. I see echoes of what would be axiom one formulations from time to time. What I have not seen is an understanding of axiom two, and that's where the practice lives. So, when, so in effect, what I'm what I'm what I'm finding is that. When, when I look at the, the, the methodologies that are being suggested and so on and so forth, I don't see a clarity with respect to what the flow dynamics need to be. And so and occasionally, just as often as not, it feels to me the flow that you're describing is, is in the wrong direction. It's random. Sometimes it's in exactly the right alignment and other times it's pointing the opposite way and I, get, I just can't tell, right? So, so what I'm basically saying is, is that at the place that you've arrived where you see the correspondences, between the language that I'm describing and your own language that you've been working with, understand that underneath all of that is a, is a, much, more, is a, is a much more coherent model than the, the, the fact of that underlying model being coherent is part of the reason why our languages are found to be correspondent at these points.
2: Yeah. We even use the same terms. Vision starting and culture are the terms we use as well. Independently okay. of you.
1: So they- Great. But, yeah. but, but keep in mind that for me, that is a projection, not, not your usage of them or my usage of them, but my usage of them is itself a projection of a deeper substrate. And that that substrate has some very definite things to say about the particular dynamics that are required for us to do as principles to have the right sort of practices. And this is where I'm really trying to bring a lot more clarity into the field. And unfortunately, it's, it's at a level of abstraction. It's just genuinely hard to do. But what, what, what I can definitely point to is, is that this is essentially kind of the next couple of chapters. It's the, it's the next couple of layers that really wanna come into focus uh, either in your work or in my work or in anybody's work in order for us to have a chance as a species to deal with things like civilization collapse or design, existential risk, and the mitigation of the imbalances of the relationship between man machine and nature as currently occurring. See, see to me these things aren't just abstractions they are they are projections of a deeper thing which is
2: practical. i am a radical pragmatist yeah. so i completely agree with you that. so absolutely okay. yeah. can I'm, I ask, I'm going,
0: yes just real quick real quick just for just for a clarification can i ask you forest to specify with respect to um, culture strategy and vision what the correspondences are to the modalities in your um in your
1: there's 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 a couple of ways that it can be done, in, in this particular sense, vision is treated as transcendent, strategy is treated as omniscient, yeah. and culture is treated as imminent. And I describe those in reverse order, but but technically, it's it's it flows from culture to strategy to vision, and vision reinfuses culture, and it goes around that way, right? So there's a there's there's that that's that's the that's the actual. Uh, flow of it like uh, I described this once earlier when I was uh, talking about culture being beneath infrastructure culture would be imminent again infrastructure would be omniscient and then what we think of as uh, finance would be transcendent but that's it's it's the sequencing that's important the sequencing allows us to know what the modalities are when we're talking about practice it's the uh, architecture of dependence and definition that allows us to know what the precedence is if we're thinking about it in terms of theory or axiom one.
2: This is why I pointed out the forest is a brilliant dialectician. So it's very dialectical. It's like, it, that's what works. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so uh, just a couple of things. I'm sensing we're moving towards a close here, Alexander. You might've been going to say something like that. I just want to uh, reference back that the book Sand Talk is written by Tyson Yonker Porter. I forgot to mention that earlier. Um, uh, otherwise, as far as the mappings go, that's, um, I was on board with that. Uh, I have, I mean, this will, this will open up another way. And when I said, uh, uh, eight hours left, um, I didn't mean for you to express what you had to express for us, but that, um, there's, there's more to this conversation. Uh, yesterday I was actually rereading, I think some crucial chapters in synthetism where Alexander, you speak about, um, atheos. Uh, and your various, your various gods, Synthios, Pantheos, and Entheos. and there's a, um, a, a quadrinity used there. And I've got a feeling that the articulation of the of the the god Synthios is going to illuminate for you, Forrest, a little bit more about. Alexander's sense of the flow. Um, I, I, and for everybody listening, I I wouldn't take what I'm saying, of course, to stand for the truth of any of this. This is just my own, my own readings and study. Um, I, and as I said in the email, I think there is alignment and I think there is also some difference in viewpoint and that itself is worthwhile to put into a dialectical, uh, relationship. So it's in that regard that I think there's more to this conversation. Um, uh even just in the even just in the forma- formation of the triad there I'm I actually think um, there are again two different angles that I was hearing you guys coming from and uh, where I see the Alexander using the symbolic imaginary and real um I've I heard that being mapped in a slightly different way and um, I could be wrong about that but basically there's there's something in there there's context in there to um to elaborate on. Um,
1: so anyway, uh, that was really enjoyable. With that particular triad, and, and I think the correspondences can be variable. I'm not, I'm not fixed on the particular correspondences uh, aside from, you know, orientation questions that might set one to be preferred. I think that the thing that I'm, I'm trying to get back to is the question you were asking about power.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean I, I have uh I have a lot, you know, I've been doing, let's say, a bit of implitation in this conversation. So there's a lot in me that has a bunch to express, but to it's it's not the time um right now and it's getting late for, for Alexander. Um
2: oh, so... I'm, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say the transcendence in, in Forrest's work uh, applies to our imaginary. I'm not saying they're identical, but they're almost the same. you can see the structure here it works. It's the same it's thing when money. they use amnesians Omnesia, is, is the symbolic in our real, and then the eminence of the real come together. So they come together. They, they, they obviously just different wordings for very, very similar things in the same sort of tragic structure.
1: And really this, they,
2: yeah, okay, Yeah
1: with that your mapping it your mapping makes sense to me and it would also yeah. be the way i would my, myself map it and so yeah we're good, good. so
2: so any you, we're, we're likely to see repetition from feudalist society not feudal feudalist society and repetition of capitalist society in the sense that you will have the real asset which is obviously data in any kind today that creates power immense power the data then creates a zonsocracy so you have an informationalist class you then have a or a cast if you like then you would have a uh, so Socratic class that replaces what we call the political today, and then you would have a Protopia class that replaces what we call the academic circles today. So You would see again how these, because the different talents, the point here is that the, the reality is out there, but the different talents, the different talents when it comes to transcend, the different talents when it comes to omniscience, the different talents when it comes to, to understanding and possessing the real. So. It's likely over time that we have the same sort of structure we had before They were called monarchy, nobility and priesthood and then we replaced them and called them politics and academia. I, I think and, from here we diverge
1: because because I, yeah. I, yeah. I see a whole different way of going about all that that doesn't need to go through any of those stages like, like it, okay. it, basically at this particular point it's as if I take a right angle and I go in a direction that doesn't exist yet.
2: Okay, I'm, I'm just trying to be descriptive. That's all I'm trying to do. Oh, okay. And basically it's likely that these kinds of triads will appear again in history because they've happened before. And when it comes to understanding the internet since understanding attention is a whole new game compared to understanding capital. Actually capital is terrible at understanding attention. It requires new talents. It basically, it basically when a new paradigm shift comes into history it's like a whole new level is suddenly there and whether you're located close to the center of the new map or not is completely irrelevant to whether you were cl- uh, uh, located close to the center of the previous map. That's exactly why we have the old institutions of our culture today are fighting all they can to fight down the new institutions that are trying to be born. And that's exactly why we're in a sort of apocalyptic anarchic state right now. And it could go terrible, terribly wrong.
0: Yeah, Especially like-
2: considering the risks we have
0: to deal with anyway if I can if I can add here what I'm hearing is that in being descriptive is effectively looking to articulate and help us see how um, similar game a type power dynamics are going to re you know formulate themselves in the digital age forest you're looking to um, invite us to see into uh, a future that is at a right angle in your language from that that is not continuous with that in some important sense it's the more user language of game b but what would be interesting and i think um i mean it necessary is that we are in fact i mean we are in transition um in this very conversation but also with respect to how this conversation meets the world at the moment and part of the second question sort of underlying this discussion is um is uh, it, it like asks us to effectively respond given the current context of where we are now which I mean I I found it quite illuminating for instance to even think about such things as you know Um, the stock market or the cryptocurrency trading market or what's currently going on with Facebook and governments through the lens of Alexander's, you know, triadic structure of how it's manifesting with the centocrats. And if you're the information lists, you know, if you're on the point of that, and then the the narrative that kind of goes into manipulating and formulating all of this very, very helpful. So it's it's like on on the one hand, we need to become literate in the dynamics, sort of assuaging us. But then at the same time, um, maintain a kind of openness to actually hold like to, to be present uh, in a, in, with both. Um, and so it's, it's a challenging place to to articulate. Um, but I think I think we've done a pretty good job of that actually. and there's obviously this next part to come.
1: but Yeah, I, I definitely agree that we need to understand the current world really well. And to to really understand the current world well, we do need to go into the kinds of things that that, that that we are talking about. I feel also that to understand the next world or the future world well, or the world that we would want to live in, that we need to actually not just use the tools and the language of understanding the current world well. We do that, yes. We must have that, yes. But in the sense of, of, of the language that was uh, described uh the imagination isn't going to be understood in terms of the symbolic. And I, I think, you know, when you, when you said that, you, you, you were really putting to, to point that, you know, the computers are never going to understand the future world that we need to live in. And so, in effect, the transitional dynamic is not going to be created out of any amount of symbolic understanding or any amount of data understanding. That what's meaningful is something that is beyond that and that it is fundamentally so. And so in effect, part of what I'm trying to do is to create a, a, a way of understanding that future that is a little bit agnostic about the language that we use today.
0: So, so, so is it the, so is actually part of the jump then this change actually the switching of where symbolic and um, or rather vision and strategy are with respect to their transcendent and omniscient mappings, because yeah, forest initially, it's
1: the same thing. Because if, if we, of them. part part of the failure, and I think, uh, you know, Alexander is pointing to this also is that if we are in a sort of dualist perspective, and it collapses back to a kind of monist perspective, a sort of physical monism, we think about things in terms of, say, causation only, that if you understand the world purely in terms of causation you can't even hold the notion that choice and change are distinct right it's it's like if i if i take and i, and I think in terms of space and time as being combined i lose track of the fact that possibility is a different kind of vector than either time or space
2: we call it hyper time
1: and about space. And, and i remember you you mentioned that and I, and I <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I tried to get into that a little bit on the email list, but it was, it was just too tricky to try to do in, in, in writing. So I, I let it go. But the, hypertime but
2: the, allows for continuum to actually exist rather than just zeros and ones and discretions. Uh, it's something when, that machines cannot grasp.
1: Well, I As mean, well. you know, Hilbert space, for example, is an infinite dimensional space and it's defined by a kind of continuum. Yeah. Uh, a Sort of dual continuum in the sense that it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a continuum of two different orders. Um, both within the dimensions and across them. I mean, you know, fractal dimensionality is actually allowed for. So there's a, there's a sense here that, you know, we, we can create awareness around uh, the, the correspondences between our, our, our various works. But I, I, I think that part of the issue that we're, we're pointing to in regards to Tim, your question is that if we are living in the imminent, it's hard to understand that the transcendent and omniscient are distinct. If we're living in the omniscient, if we treat the world from the omniscient, it's hard to believe or to understand that the transcendent and the imminent are distinct. And you can't move from the omniscient into the transcendent unless you actually know and can work with the difference between the transcendent and the imminent. This goes back to the pre-trans fallacy of of Ken Wilber. If you're in the prior state, you don't even know that there's such a thing as a post-state. And going through the process to get you to the post-state reveals things to you that are altogether different than what you could know in the prior state. So so, so in this particular sense, you know, when, when we're talking to most philosophers, there's literally zero awareness that the transcendent and the omniscient are distinct. They need their own ways of working, that they, that they have completely different methodologies. They conflate uh, the, the, the notion of vision and strategy as if they were the same. Now, I know that that's not always the case but i'm basically yeah. saying that this is what we call the two-headed phallus the two-headed phallus, phallus.
2: yeah the two-headed yeah. phallus yeah the phallus with the two heads
1: interesting so yeah. and they must running,
2: admire one another without knowing each other at all so just that's what we call it poetically yeah
1: so there's 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 clearly running into the same sort of dynamics and i and i i'm, I'm basically at this point trying to give articulation of what's on the far side of that Now I can try to do that in terms of the existing language. And the better I am at doing it in terms of the existing language, the worse you're gonna have an idea of what the future is. But the more I try to describe the future in terms of its own language, the harder it's gonna be to understand from where we are sitting today.
2: That is why we say that the past is best described with logos and the future must be understood with pathos. And we call pathos is a narrative to us, pathic narrative.
1: I'll have to think about that. I, I sense that there's some elements of correspondence there, but there might be some nuances that are worth exploring because I, I, yeah. I very much look at the future in terms of situations which are not narrative. It's interesting. It's like-
2: Yeah, I, we call I, it pathic narratives. It's not traditionally understood as narrative. We okay. think everything okay. is narrative, but we, we speak clearly about different narratives. And again, these narratives, logos, mythos, and pathos also rhyme with your transcendence, omniscience, and, and imminence as well
1: back so, to you, Tim.
0: Yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah. Okay. <sighs> I think, um, just for my part in closing, there's, um, something deeply profoundly important to the process of, um, uh, transforming the intention in, in that sense and, an inner vision, um, into speech that then becomes the, um, propositions of things that can be <sighs> traded back and forth in that sense have become, um, maybe objects we can then pass to each other. And it's in the process of doing this, the process of giving voice then in an, in an imminent sense, but oriented from this, this deep attempt to communicate the soul's image, the image in the soul, the image of the future in this sense, vision, uh, that i find at least that the that's where it's where i i suppose would direct attention to and for my part the, the the interest like the dedication to the ongoing nature of this conversation is actually to be found in building structures of invitations that enable a sacred participation in the artfulness of conversation and it's in that is the the temple in that sense but the 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 praxis the participation in the temple which enables the, the the transition of this kind of age something like this it sounds like a great cliffhanger alexander i know it's getting late for you so thank you both for joining and uh i suppose i'll, I'll end the recording here love you both a bit. thank you for listening and if you enjoy these podcasts please consider sharing them or leaving a review and perhaps also to consider supporting it on patreon.com voicecraft